What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Welcome to episode 251 with my guest Rama. I'm Paul Gilmartin. This is the Mental Illness Happy Hour, a place for honesty about all the battles in our heads from medically diagnosed conditions, past traumas, and sexual dysfunction to everyday compulsive negative thinking. This show is not meant to be a substitute for professional mental counseling. I'm not a therapist. It's not a doctor's office. It's more like a waiting room that doesn't suck. The website for this show is mentalpod.com. Go there, check it out, fill out a survey. Maybe we'll read it on the show. It certainly helps us get to know you better, whether or not we read it. Uh, you can also browse and see uh, how other people have filled out their their uh, surveys. You can, uh, at our website, you can uh, donate to the show. You can read blogs, guest blogs. You can participate in the forum, uh, all kinds of stuff. So, uh, so go check it out. Um, let's get to some surveys. This is struggle on a sentence survey. This is filled out by uh, a woman who calls herself recovery doesn't get a day off. And about her depression, uh, she writes, telling a depressed person to be happy is like telling someone who is choking to breathe. That's a great one. This is filled out by uh, a woman who calls herself No Trust Wednesdays and about being a sex crime victim. She writes, every man that I see is now guilty until proven innocent. This is filled out by a woman who calls herself Tomboy Betty Cakes um, about having misophonia. I don't know if it's misophonia or misophonia. Um, and <laughs> I like how right after I smacked, smacked my tongue, uh, misophonia is is a uh, being uh, like more annoyed than usual by the sound of chewing or lip smacking or things like that. And uh, she writes, uh, when I hear the sounds of chewing and lip smacking, I immediately think, would it be worth it to spend my life in prison to slay this person who insists on smacking their lips? Yes, but then there's no guarantee that my cellmate won't eat loudly either. I'm fucked. Thank you for that. This is fill out, filled out by a woman who calls herself Lazy Lion. Uh, in fact, I think all of our uh, opening uh, surveys were, were filled out by women. Um, 
she writes about her anxiety. Customers get mad, your fault. Boyfriend gets sick, your fault. Oil spill, your fault. Seriously, why do you keep causing all these disasters? About being a sex crime victim. My dad cried. He didn't understand why I didn't talk to him. Why wasn't I a little daddy's girl anymore? I don't know. Maybe when you violated my body, it upset me or something. Seriously, go fuck yourself, dad. Uh, and then a snapshot from her life. Trying on new clothes for work. Try three different stores. End up feeling fat, disgusting, deformed. I'm so ashamed of the weight I've put on in the last couple of years, so I go home, cry, and eat a whole pizza by myself. Ah, yes, pizza will solve all my problems. This is filled out by uh, a woman who calls herself uh, Monlina Dietrich. And about her depression, she writes, You feel numb and nothing really tastes good. You don't actually want anything. Everything is flat. I am in that place. And then this was filled out by uh, a woman who calls herself NC3291. And about her depression, she writes, My bed is the only one who truly understands. Oh, my God. I have been going to bed every day around 4 o'clock, sometimes as even as 3.30. Just when it, the sun starts sinking in the fall, it feels like like it is like all the blood has just been pulled out of my soul. And it's it, almost like I've been shot by a tranquilizer. And I can't even open mail. I just have to go lay down in bed. And the worst part is the bedding needs to be washed. And then I smell my pillow and I'm like, you are just so fucking lazy. You are just so fucking lazy. And then the healthy part of my brain says, this is, you know, this is something that you're battling. This isn't a personal flaw. Just try to try to sleep. And then Ivy jumps up and down on the bed and goes under the covers and comes out. And uh, and it's basically I toss and turn from 4 to, uh, to 6.30 until my wife comes home from work. And uh, that's basically fall. I'm looking forward to uh, to spring. Uh, and then finally, uh, she writes about being a sex crime victim. I set myself on fire to keep everyone warm. My God, somebody does what I've been doing. There's shame. You have boundary issues. I feel guilty for hating my mom. I will be high by 4 p.m. You feel helpless. I will be in hell by 4.15. Prison was not easy. But I deserved it. I think I'm just addicted to lying. I rubbed my body in mud and I laid in the swamp. Didn't move for six hours. I looked forward to and dreaded each meal at the same time. I think I desperately, desperately wanted to talk about it, but I didn't know how to start the conversation. And that's when I, I called the suicide hotline. A good Craigslist experience is if you are alive at the end of it. So, <laughs> so that is when I first felt love. Like I first felt. Reaching out to the people and sharing with the other people. Um, this intimate connection where people do stuff for each other without wanting something in return. Yeah, I just, I surrendered. I think I was 28 and that was the first time I ever experienced that and it was amazing. I'm here with Rama, uh, who is uh, a listener. And we're, we're at uh, the place that she shares with her, uh, her boyfriend, uh, Hayden. We're here in uh, New York City, and uh, 
we've been we we went out and grabbed grabbed a bite to to eat and have been talking probably for about an hour and a half two hours about childhood shit. Um, you, you're of Arab descent. Both your parents were Syrian. You spent some time in Brazil. Um, your issues are depression and anxiety. You also experienced sexual abuse from a stepfather. Haydn, who is here, uh, has some uh, some struggles with bipolar. Um, we've this is a Thanksgiving platter. <laughs> Of delightfulness. <laughs> this is a cornucopia. This is, all we need is some gravy. I think he already summarized everything. Thank you, Paul, for having me. It was so nice having you, Rama. Um, talk about one of the reasons I, I'm excited to, to record you is we've never had a guest of Arab descent to talk, especially one in... Uh, from New York, who lives in New York, to talk about what it was like post 9-11, what it's like pre-9-11, what it's like post 9-11. And I also want to talk about the conflict in Syria and how, how sure. your opinions on that. Where would be a good place to start uh, talking about the um, experience of being Arab and especially being a woman? Yeah. Um, and you're 28 years old? Yeah, I'm 28. Okay. I think I can start talking about what it was after 9-11, um, what I experienced in school, especially, even though I, when 9-11 happened, I was in eighth grade, but I was in Brazil. And um, I grew up in Sao Paulo, which is an incredibly rich, like, city with so much diversity, and there's a big Syrian and Lebanese community, and Arabs are seen extremely exotic and from like this different world and you know Aladdin kind of mm-hmm. view about us um, well to be fair you do ride around on magic carpets yeah yeah all the time and that's when we want to fly when we want to just walk around we use our camels um <laughs> So I think it it was very strange to go from, you know, this sort of exotic figure in class to the terrorist in class. And there's a lot of anti-American sentiment everywhere. I think people have this misconception that only like the Middle East is anti-Arab or, you know, places... They're not the West, you know, more to the East side, I think South it's, Asia. I, I you know. think any place with resources yeah. has problems <laughs> with America. <laughs> Our foreign policy has, by and large, no. been resource-driven since yes. uh, the 1850s. Yes. So, for me, it's actually kind of weird to say that there was a lot of anti-American sentiment in Brazil. You know, like when I went to school... A lot of my teachers said, well, this is what happens when the United States mingle into other people's businesses. Now, you hadn't lived in the United States at no. that point. No, so I, was, so you had, I was Brazilian. Yeah. Um, and so I was, very, I was bullied in school. But you also moved back and forth between Syria. Yeah. And, because you were conceived in Syria. Then you moved to Brazil. Yes. Then your sister was... Conceived in Syria. And then we moved to Brazil again. Back again. And then when I was five, we moved 
to Brazil permanently. And your dad stayed in Syria where he is now. Yes. And your mom then uh, Then got together with your your stepfather stepfather. who was was your abuser. Yes, my abuser. So I think like it was very difficult for me to be bullied for several reasons. When I was, you know, a kid, uh, one of them for looking different. And then after 9-11, it was just like, I was a joke of the class. You know, don't mess with Rama. She might just put a bomb in the building. You know, and haha, it's funny, the first, second time, and then you start internalizing it, and then you just start playing with it as well. It's like, oh, yeah, yeah, I will fuck you up. You know, I will put a fucking bomb here and blow your head off. <laughs> it Because it, it becomes like such an issue, and then sometimes you that's the only coping mechanism that you have and then when I moved to the states I was 14 um, 14 15 I moved to Miami and Miami is you know filled with immigrants from all over Latin America and I really didn't feel discriminated because I blended in so well as a Brazilian you know nobody really and as an Arab too there's a lot of Arabs in Venezuela and Colombia so a lot of people have Arab ancestry um, so our friends were mostly South American, and I really didn't feel, like, discriminated until I went to college. And that was, like, at the height of the Iraq War. And that was very, very difficult. So this would have been, like, 2004, 2005? Yeah. I graduated. I went to, yeah, I graduated high school in 2006, and that's when I went to University of Florida. And, man, that was, that was, that was hard. Talk about it. Um, it was difficult because... I was studying Middle Eastern studies, and I probably was one of the only Arab people in the class, and so I was like the token Arab, and so I had to be very careful with what I said, and sometimes people would would just like look at me if I raised my hand to you know give a comment on a certain issue, and it was very difficult to. You know, Iraq is very close to Syria, so we had a lot of friends who were affected by the war. And um, a lot of uh, Iraqis fled to Syria and Jordan. Yes, so many. And, And I think there was just this paranoia. That's when it started, you know, like all Arabs are, are, you know, evil and have these like crazy ideas and are extremists and are fundamentalists and and you know the country became very conservative but you know ignorant in a way you know they didn't really know about us and um thinking that we are a homogeneous culture and a homogeneous society do people think you were muslim as well yeah definitely because everybody thinks that you were raised christian i guess syrian orthodox i was raised syrian orthodox um a sect of christianity you, you still speak aramaic fluently yeah <laughs> we do pray in aramaic at church and Haydn experienced that when we were in jerusalem once and stayed awake for it did you I can't yeah. imagine how how dull a ceremony in Aramaic ha- has to be. I got to tell you, I went to church for 10 straight years. I memorized every single chant, and I have no idea what they say. Yeah, that sounds like a good time. <laughs> that, sounds, that sounds like a, a waiting for the bus <laughs> in a more uncomfortable bench than the... Than the 
Yeah, so I think he was... It's basically waiting for the bus with incense. That's yeah. basically... <laughs> there, there is a lot of incense. Yeah. Um, the old-timey religions are big yeah. on the incense. Can I take my shoes off? Yeah, please. My feet are please killing do. me. Um, so I think during mostly because I, we walked ten miles out of our way coming back from, to <laughs> eat because you have no sense of direction. I have the greatest sense of direction. I take this very personally. Yes. At one point, I just looked at her and I said, "You realize we're walking in a circle, and we're five blocks from your fucking house." <laughs> and that's because I was following the Google Maps like yeah. straight, like n- didn't take my eyes off of it, and yeah. still, still went in a circle. Yeah. Just so good at this. Anyway, I got us. I got us off track. So uh, you're at. Uh, you're in Miami. You're going to college. Yes. And uh, and you're you're really beginning to notice a, a, a difference. And again, you're not Muslim. You're not wearing a headscarf. Uh, is yeah. it is it mostly you hearing people talk about Arabs and they don't know you're Arab, or is it they know you're Arab and they're saying things to you about Arabs? So I look very Arab, like. <laughs> In Miami, I could easily blend in, in a, as a Latina, but, but in um, in a place where people know how Arabs look like and how Hispanics look like, I just I clearly have Arab written all over my face, and so people knew. And I I like I was I'm proud of it. You know, I'm proud of my heritage. I'm proud of my culture. So I was always very outspoken, um, but. You know, seeing my my brothers and my sisters who who wear the headscarves, who are Muslim. Um, seeing, you mean your literal no, blood? Okay. Like fellow. where I was saying, my fellow brothers and sisters. Gotcha. It's it's just disheartening and it's so painful and and I always felt like I had to like come from this like defensive side you know I have to like constantly defend my culture and constantly defend where I come from and I just didn't feel like I was just like so sick and tired of doing that give give me some of the greatest hits of shit that just gets under your skin that people say or think about Arabs and and what you have said in Response or what you would like to say in response? Obviously, the big one is that you're terrorists. Yeah, well, that goes without saying. Um, but that all Arab men beat their wives, you know? Um, that we need to liberate Arab women. That Talk about that one a little bit. Yeah, I... I really have such an issue with that, you know, and especially after, and I don't want to get too political, but especially after the wars in Afghanistan and, and Iraq, this idea that we went there and we liberated their women, and it, it, it just drives me so insane. I am not going to sit here and tell you there's no patriarchy within my community or within my culture. Um, I'm not blind. I see it. But for... A Western civilization that has a, a discussion about, you know, birth control and contraceptives in this country, all from a white male perspective, like, where where are you coming from? Like, you have patriarchy in this nation. You know, women aren't paid the same as men in the United States. There aren't as many women in government in the United States. But, Rama, we hold the door open for you. Don't you see it evens <laughs> out in the end? 
<laughs> you know, that whole story that blew up about, you know, the Affordable Care Act and including contraceptives under it, like, and this girl who, who I don't remember where she was from, I really don't remember, but she was saying how she really needed to take contraceptives and somebody, I think it was... Jo- uh, Rush Limbaugh, Rush Limbaugh yeah. and he called her a slut so she can like sleep around like and you are going into our <laughs> nations and liberating our women when you have no respect for the women within your own society and, and actually she even needed it for I believe for her hormones because yes. she was having a PMS or something else but it, it, regardless it regardless doesn't fucking matter of but, what it is I yeah. mean even when we talk about you know abortion rights or the the women's rights to choose you know you turn on the tv and you see a bunch of men discussing these Mm -hmm. issues and it's like that's crazy that's insane or when a woman wants to you know work and raise a family and that's one of the issues that comes up it's like if hillary clinton is running you know to be president um can she do it can she you know be a grandmother and run the country and that's just insane did we ask that of the other male candidates so to tell me that you're going into my community and my countries and liberating our women and teaching us you know how we should treat women when you can't even treat women right here it's just so hypocritical you know i i think being victors in world war 1 and world war 2 really saddled us with a big ego um about being uh savers around the world and i also think hollywood has fallen in love with the idea of the white savior you know, yeah. the white savior that comes into the poor neighborhood and educates, you know, the lowly masses or yeah. goes to the the country where things are backwards and brings. And sure. It's yeah, it's a little I, I couldn't see it for a lot of years until I started hearing people of color talk about it and it kind of opened my eyes to it. So I, I can understand how a lot of people um, that don't have differing voices around them can still not see it. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying it's okay, but it is It is definitely a problem. It yeah. is definitely a problem. Yeah. And I'm not saying that there isn't an issue here. What I'm saying is that we can take care of ourselves and we can address these issues within our communities. And we don't need an external force to come in and impose their own views and their own morals and their own principles. Um, that's all I'm saying. You know, I mean, I don't wear the headscarf, so it, it's not very, you know... For, for a woman that wears a headscarf, it's like, you know, she's walking and she's carrying Islam on her shoulders pretty much because everybody can see it, you know. So I don't I don't know the pressure that that, you know, that that, that woman carries on her shoulders. Um, but I know that I grew up with these people and, you know, they are. It doesn't matter if you're Muslim or if you're Sunni, if you're Shia, if, if you're if you're Christian. We're all Arab, and the situation in Syria, for example, we're all Syrians, and that's how I grew up. You know, I I saw it as that all the time, and it's strange for me to be a minority in Syria, to be a minority in Brazil, and now to be a minority in the United States. Like, I really understand what it feels to be that, to constantly have to defend 
you know, your community. Um, yeah, it's, it's just, it's hard. I think I like to, I like to think that things are getting better. Uh, I like to think that we are, even though you see the most ridiculous things that, you know, the Republican candidates are saying right now about Muslims, it's just insanity. But I hope that we can, we can come past that because I look at, and I was talking to Hayden about this earlier today, you know, I was, I was talking about Jewish society and, you know, how Jews were persecuted throughout history, you know, um, you know, in Egypt and then in Europe, and then they had to, you know, live in Arab countries and Muslim led countries. Um, and then back in Europe and during the Holocaust and, you know, they've always been seen as this like different group, this, you know, that they didn't belong. They, you know, and it's not like that anymore, at least not in American society, for sure. Um, Certainly smatterings of it, you know, with with hate, hate crimes, but in, sure, in terms in but, terms of like being held back as yes. a as a population. Yes. Yeah. You know, they've come a long way and um, it's not acceptable, you know, but the bigotry against Muslims and Arabs and those perceived as such, it's totally acceptable, you know. People can talk, the, say the most ridiculous things, and it's it's fine, you know. Nobody will say anything against it, you know. What Ben Carson was saying about you know not hiring any Muslims or having any you know Muslim leader run for office or whatever whatever crazy shit he said, you know that's unacceptable. Would you say that about somebody who's Jewish? Would you say that about somebody who's black? Would you say that? No, I you- say it about all those people. <laughs> I'm equal opportunity. I hate everybody. Everybody's dirty. Everybody's sketchy. Why can't they be like me? You can re you can reach me at whitelikeme.com. There probably is a website called that. I wouldn't doubt it. Uh, let's what, what what would you like to talk about uh, next? Uh, we had a really nice heart to heart um this yeah. afternoon talking about all the uh, all the lovely baggage that comes along with uh, childhood sexual abuse. Um, what what are some things that you would like to share um, to maybe bring some comfort to somebody out there who is hasn't really confronted it yet, is in the middle of confronting it, is going back and forth in their mind. What are what are the what are the battles? for you where did they begin and where are they now I think I was really lucky to I mean let me backtrack a little bit and say that my sexual abuse took place between the ages of 12 and 14 and I think that was for me like when I think about it a very difficult age because you 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 think that you kind of have a sense of what's right and wrong and I think that's the hardest thing to deal with. It's to know that, but I knew it was wrong, and I didn't do anything about it. Um, and I think too, when when kids, um, you know, their bodies start to change, you kind of think, "All right, I'm an adult now." 
Exactly. You know, and I think I think that can set you up for um, thinking you're you can handle things you can't. Yeah, and I think for me, this man was in my life since I was six, and started dating my mom and they like really fast it was they were what we call in Portuguese noivos which means you know they are fiancés but they're not gonna get married anytime soon but they will at some point <laughs> it's like a domestic partnership um, and I think at some point when I was like seven my grandma was like you know you should call him daddy you know since your dad is totally out of the picture and I felt really comfortable with him he I was like I was telling you earlier he like came to every ballet recital every school play you know when it was Father's Day we always made him like the most adorable cards and he was always present um he was the only one that really like sat down with me and would ask me like how was your day you know what did you do today what did you learn today my mother was working all the time she was very absent um and my grandma was just trying to feed us and take us to school and that was like that's what she thought parenting was you know a roof over our heads and food under the table and and that was it and um so he gave me that attention that I so desperately needed you know and I would look for my mom over the weekends when she was available but it was just it was just not enough you know and the older you get I feel like when you reach that age where you just like fight with your mother about everything like as a girl you know it's so common that you get even closer to your father I I know Freud said that <laughs> and then the same happens with with boys when they get really close to their mothers at some point and kind of distance from their father um, for me it was just about comfort and security and you were an outsider at school you were struggling to, to feel a part of I was so bullied in school it was ridiculous what were you bullied around I the dumbest shit. Like, when I was in elementary school, uh, my mother used to make us stuck in our shirts. And it always, <laughs> like, have this, like, little bulge in my belly, you know, because the shirt wasn't supposed to be tucked in. And people would just, like, point and laugh. And I was just, like, run after them and, like, try to hit them with my little lunch bag. And so I was, like, the joke of the class, pretty much. <laughs> And I was very talkative. Um, and so everybody would make fun of that. I, my two teeth, like the front teeth, were really big. And there was a cartoon that any Brazilian would know. It's called Turma da Monica. And Monica is this like little girl with big teeth. And so everybody would just go around and be like, Monica, Monica. Just like <laughs> <laughs> and that's like elementary school. And then... In middle school, I just look different, you know? I have, like, thick eyebrows, you know, like a bigger nose. <laughs> and my mother would always cut my hair, like, all the way by my, my chin. And I'm not supposed to have hair that short because I'm an Arab. And <laughs> it will just 
hoof, you know, <laughs> during the summer. I would just like have pretty much like a casket. <laughs> you know, so you basically look like Squ- SpongeBob SquarePants. Yes, <laughs> but round. <laughs> um, so. I remember when I was used to go to school, I would try and put my hair really like on my face when I was like walking and people were looking at my my side like my per, my perfil like my my no like just a side is that what it is yeah, profile. profile Yeah and I always like had this thing about my nose like being so big and my great grandma once told me you know, don't worry. You one day you will, you will take off these braces, and we will do your nose when you're 18, and you will be beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> so I really, did, I really did not feel good about myself, and people made fun of it all the time. You know, just hair on my arms, for example, like shit like that. They were just really ruthless. And in eighth grade, they would call me a witch, and all the girls in the class started wearing, like, crosses. And every time I would walk by, they would, like, bless me like this, you know? That's brutal. It was. It was brutal. And it was because I was really into fantasy shit. That was my escape. You know, I didn't do any drugs. (laughs) What I did was read a lot of Harry Potter and Lord of the Rings and be a nerd about it. Um, so, yeah, kids were ruthless. They really were. And the thing in Brazil is that you don't move classes. The teachers move. So you have one class with 30 kids the whole year, the same kids. So if these kids are bullying you, they're going to bully you for 365 days. Oh, wow. You're stuck with the same children in this class. So I really... I really didn't have many friends. I had like one girlfriend and I was really good friends with the boys because I was one of the boys. I was Mm. never seen as like a potential, you know, love, girlfriend, the hot girl, never. Mm. (laughs) I was always like the tomboy. So you, you were custom made for a predator to groom oh you were for sure yes and it's like it's every time that i think about it you know as an adult now and and going back in my memory my memories and in hindsight you think about it and you're like i was so vulnerable and i needed attention and i needed love that's all I needed. I needed somebody to tell me that everything is going to be fine. I mean, my mother had no idea these things were happening at school at all. Like, she had no idea. Nobody did. You know, my grandma was very concerned only if I ate <laughs> my dinner or not, which is um, the beginning of my anxiety, really, because I had a big problem with food. I wouldn't eat. I just hated, hated eating. So I think that's where the anxiety really started. Why why did you hate eating? I can't I still can't pinpoint it, but between the ages of 5 and like 14 every meal I had this like hole in my stomach. You know this like pain. It's like very physical and I was just constantly feel nauseous just by smelling the food, just by smelling the wow. food. 
like breakfast like the second I woke up and I knew I had to have breakfast I was just like get this feeling lunch the same feeling dinner the same feeling and I wouldn't eat I couldn't eat like nobody understood that I wasn't being a brat I just really couldn't fucking eat, you know? My wife had a lot of that, that same stuff uh, uh, growing up where they were, you know, a very Italian thing is, you know, uh, why, why, why can't you have a second plate? <laughs> Finish it. Finish it. Yeah. And she would say, my stomach hurts. I can't, I can't eat anymore. Nobody really would listen to her. They would, no. they would just, you know, oh, look at, you know, Mrs. Fancy Pants, you know, doesn't want to eat our food. Um I'm sorry, I got off. I got off on that track. Uh, the The fire department is coming. Uh, my, <laughs> They're my coming for us. My equipment is on fire. Um. So. Uh, so I think going back to the food thing, it's where most of my anxiety came from. So I was experiencing that at home, where my grandma would literally just yell at me, like "eat, eat, eat," and I couldn't eat, and so I would like throw most of my food at my sister. Like, literally on her plate. Like, please. I would, like, sit there and beg her, Nada, please, please, I beg you, just have my food, please. And, like, the verge of tears. Um, What's beautiful is this could be, you could be Jewish, Italian, or Arab uh, describing this this scenario right now. It's completely interchangeable. (laughs) Exactly. And sometimes I would just put like the food into a napkin and then whenever she turned around, I would like throw it away. But so many times she caught me and she would just like spank me and be like, don't do this. One time I I would tell her like, I'm going to puke, I'm going to puke. And she would be like, if you puke, you're going to eat your own vomit. That's just sensible parenting. I got to agree with her on that. That's just, you're getting your nutrition and you're cleaning up around the house. So I got no, I got no problem with the old lady there. <laughs> One time she locked me outside the house with my plate right before going to school. And she was like, I'm not taking you to school. And she just like opened the door threw me out with my plate and clocked the door and I was just like bawling with this like blade of food like I remember what it was it was like green beans with like chunks of meat and like red sauce it's like a very Arab dish and I was just like I couldn't I just I couldn't I was just bawling and then she took my sister to school through the other door and I remember the lady who lived with us, the nanny, maid, whatever. <laughs> she did everything. She, like, opened the door and she threw my food away. She, like, wiped my tears and she took me to school. So I had a lot of anxiety around food. And I don't think anybody understood that it wasn't me being a brat. It was just, it, it was something. Did you ever have your mom or your grandmother or any blood relative ever wipe your tears for you? Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I have memories of my mom being very motherly because she was motherly during the weekends, right? She didn't have to raise us during the week because she was working all the time. I barely saw her. But she was there during the weekends. And so a lot of the stress actually came from this eating shit. 
like my grandma would go and bitch to my mother and be like mm. i can't take it anymore like she does not eat like i can't and then my mom would come to me and be like why aren't you eating please why aren't you eating you know we're here we're staying here they're being so great to us you know they're taking us in her parents yeah yeah why aren't you eating i was just like nobody fucking understands like it's not i'm not doing this on purpose and and you had and still have a very complicated uh, relationship with with your mom um yeah i think it's so we're jumping around but for me when i started addressing the sexual abuse as an adult i started seeing that the issues weren't so much about the sexual abuse but what came before and what came after and it was i was just set up to fail as a child you know they never gave me the tools to be you know a strong kid it was more like what is it that that you've said several times in the program it's like be seen and not heard kind of parenting be heard or not seen what you're putting words in my mouth i don't know what the fuck you're talking <laughs> about <laughs> we want to be seen and heard as kids no, no no just like um be seen but not heard i don't yeah. fucking know what i'm trying to say you're thinking of another podcast you're thinking of the seen and not heard podcast <laughs> you can cut this off yeah. but um it was more like you you do what you have to do to stay invisible. Mm -hmm. You know, that's that's the way we grew up. So I think it was very difficult because we couldn't be angry. We couldn't show any emotions. The only emotion we were allowed to show was gratitude and happiness. And gratitude was expected of us constantly, constantly. And in hindsight, like, when I think about it, it's... It's not my fucking fault that I was born, you know? This is your responsibility, you know? I don't have to constantly thank you for putting a roof over my head and food on my table. That's your responsibility yeah. when you made the decision to give to, birth. Exactly. It's like constantly I have to say thank you for everything. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. All the time. And whenever we messed up, and we really were good kids, man. We were fucking good kids. Like, we... We would touch something, and if it fell, we'd be like, oh, my God, I'm so sorry. Oh, my God, I'm so sorry. Like, we would go to people's homes, and everybody would constantly be like, your kids are just so well, like, behaved. They're so well behaved. And my mother and my grandparents would be always, like, so, like, proud. Yes, they are. Because we would just, like, sit quietly in the corner and, like, try to stay away from the adults, you know, mm -hmm. stay away, out of the way, you know. So um, I never really was able to develop a personality, you know, a strong personality. It's it's so hard to learn how to love yourself when you didn't get that sense of safety and comfort and love consistently, unconditionally from the, the people that raise you. And that's the perfect word, unconditionally. Every time that I would act up a little bit, because children do that, and I think that's natural, mm -hmm. um, my mom would be like, you're going to end up being just like your aunt, my dad's sister, who is totally disliked 
everywhere like within my family i don't like her so <laughs> i understand she, she had like a big attitude she had like a big personality she she's just like one of those people that my family looked down upon constantly because she didn't know how to hold herself she was vulgar she was um you know she had this nasty attitude she talked back at people and so every time i would say something she would be like do you want to be like her do you want to end up like her instead of giving you consequences in a healthy way of saying well you know you're going to have a little time out right here because that's not an appropriate way to 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 act out uh you know what you did so we're going to you're going to go to your room for an hour as opposed to shaming you oh yeah you know what i mean shame is is the like definition of my upbringing everything was about shame shame don't do this shame don't do that shame that you're talking this way shame that you're you know do you think that that, that it uh aided your desire to keep things secret that were happening with your stepfather absolutely because it was shameful you i mean know. it's it, what would people say? What, be, right. what would people at church say? I mean, you've got to really feel it's safe to go to a, a, a parent or an authority figure with something that is that uh, that is that intense, and that yeah. you still haven't even wrapped your brain around who whose fault it is. Exactly. I mean, I will I will tell you a couple of Snapchats. Um, <laughs> you just said Snapchats. What are they? <laughs> Instead of Snapshots, you said Snapchats. <laughs> I told you I'm an immigrant. <laughs> Such an immigrant thing to say. Um, snapshots of my childhood. Um, one of the things is uh, we used to go to, and we come from a like, straight up very wealthy background. Um, except my mother, right? Because she worked and had to provide for us. But, you know, my whole family in general. So we used to go to this like country club in Brazil. And it was like an after-school program. And we were building kites one day. And I remember there were two, um, like, counselors. And they were both men. And I think this guy was like my age now who's probably like 28 29 and i remember she was looking at us from from far and i was you know i don't know how to describe this but i had like he had his hand open and i had my other hand and just like kind of going like this like patting patting, patting his hand. yeah mm -hmm. like you know almost it's like, like patty cakes yeah <laughs> kind of do that a lot in as a kid, I remember doing this with my girlfriends. We just did that. So I was just like doing that, you know, um, while we were building a kite. And when we finished, my mother took me to the side and said, who's that guy? And I said, you know, just a counselor. Don't do that. Don't pat his hand like that. It's not cool. Aib. Aib is shame in Arabic. Don't do that. Aib. And she didn't say why? She, she just said it was just not, it was just cool. 
just wasn't cool. Did you, you know, have any idea? Weird. Did you have any idea why? Is it because your mom thought maybe he was predatory, or she didn't tell me? Yeah, and it, I mean, I think there's a way of telling your kid, like, you know, who's that person, and you know, like, I don't know. I was like nine. It seems like a pretty innocuous thing for a nine-year-old to do with if, a camp counselor. Or- I I thought so too, and then she made me feel so ashamed and so inadequate. And so I feel like that's how I felt most of my childhood. I just felt inadequate constantly. And it sounds like you were then wired to whatever happens to you, you're going to you're going to blame yourself first. Of course. Why wouldn't I? I mean, I trusted him. He made the first move. He started very small. Um and I said nothing. He said, keep it a secret. And I said, yeah. You know, I could have said something. And I, and I didn't. And you blame yourself for that. Because if I, imagine if I had said something, then maybe it wouldn't have escalated. Maybe it would have ended at, at the first kiss. Or, you know, but it, but it didn't. And I remember when I got my period... And this is like a very personal story that I've shared with very few people. But when I got my period, he was there. And he was so static. And he was like, oh my God, congratulations, you're a woman now. And he grabbed my underwear and he went he went to wash it. And my mom comes in from work and she sees him washing my underwear. And she comes to me and she's like what is he doing? And I was like, I think I got my period. He's washing my underwear. No. Why did you let him? Instead of going to him and saying, Instead of going to him and being like, what the fuck are you doing? Don't wash my daughter's underwear. Because that shit is weird. No. She came to me. She was like, don't let him do that again. Okay? Wow. And so it, it felt to me like I couldn't. I really honestly... I couldn't tell her. There was no way she would ever that, understand. That closed that door. No, completely, completely. There was there was no way. There was no way. And when things escalated, you know, and I think it's, it's the hardest thing to talk about when you're a survivor of sexual abuse, childhood sexual abuse, is you can't help it that it feels good you can't help it that you feel safe you can't help it that you know somebody tells you they love you and you feel special yeah you feel special and it's somebody who who truly love who has who has a proven track record that they love you although you 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 were we were talking today and you were saying you know as you look back on it you wonder was he grooming me from the start. Yeah. And and that's one of the things that we were laughing about is that you, one of the worst repercussions of surviving childhood sexual abuse is the confusion. Yes. Where does the truth lie? In a thousand different things. And so your brain is almost constantly spinning, trying to put something in one neat box or another, and it just doesn't work that way. It just doesn't. It doesn't. And I've talked about this in therapy, like I was telling you, you know, was he grooming me for six fucking years? You know, was he waiting for that moment? Was he waiting for me to grow, to turn 
12 like that's his fucking favorite age or something was he waiting for that moment you know was the times that i actually spend with him as a father daughter would they all lie you know when when he went to see my recitals when i sat on his lap as an eight-year-old you know when he asked me about boys when we talked about school i it's it's so confusing and there's just no words to describe it and they, you'll never know the truth you'll never, never know the, the, the real never truth. because it's not like you can ask him <laughs> he's gonna say it you know and there's also no point in you know just keep like mingling into these thoughts and like trying to figure out because you don't really take anything yeah. out of it like what's what's the point it's like right you now it's like you lose your innocence and you lose uh the truth you, yeah you lose a lot of truths yeah and i think it's it's very difficult you 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 feel cheated and i never really had a father and so the six years that i thought i did did i really you know like put this man in a pedestal called him a dad you know i i've i've even struggled in calling this incest you know Why? because because he was my stepdad right he wasn't like my biological father but then i think about it and it's like no i he is the closest thing to an image of a father that i will ever know i don't know what it is to have a dad and and to me that's that was what having a dad was and when i was 12 he like your typical pedophilia shit you know like i'm gonna teach you how to kiss so when you have your own boyfriend and i'm sorry if that's triggering but i guess we're talking about sexual abuse so everything will be triggering but um so when you have your own boyfriend you will you know you'll know how to do it um but let's not tell mom you know, everything was just like, let's just keep this a secret. To tell the listeners the church. Yeah, the church thing. Um, when it became really big, like at the peak, which he would like to call the peak, he said we were climbing this mountain. And at one point, we would reach the peak. What did he mean by that? By, this is going to end at some point. When we get to that point, when you're ready to get married and you find the right person, we won't have this relationship. I see. But until then, we're climbing this mountain together. As if he's helping you grow. But that was the perspective. Like, right. that's exactly what he was presenting to me, you know? I'm teaching you how to live, you know? I'm teaching you how to be an adult, you know? I'm teaching you what is the world of an adult is and how you have how you're supposed to deal with these situations so i go to church i used to go to church every sunday my family is very religious we used to go to church every sunday and he, they actually met at church his family also is one of the um the older families in the why church why wouldn't they why wouldn't they <laughs> <laughs> it's a very small community and 
there's these very few old families, Syrian families mostly, who go to this church that my my great-grandpa actually helped build. And so a church that we're very proud of. And his family is part of this, you know, this church. So And once, so they had a pedophilia bake sale to raise yeah, money. Yeah. <laughs> Cookies shaped <laughs> like children. <laughs> So at church, he would wait, you know, it's like a three-hour mass, by the way, if you do oh not know God. Orthodox. Um, after the three-hour mass. <laughs> There's no reason there should ever be a three-hour mass. Three hours, man. It's crazy. It would start at 11, and it was acceptable for everyone to get there at 11.45. Like, that was- <laughs> Nobody would stay at 11. The priest would start Mass at 11, and people would just start trickling in at 11.30, 11.45, because, yo, who's going to sit through that whole three hours? My, my wife said to me one time, we were at a Catholic wedding, and about two and a half hours into it, she leaned over to me and she said, I'm looking at Jesus on the cross with envy. <laughs> So, so go ahead. I'm sorry, I got off on that on that sidetrack. So, you you're in you're in church. We're in with church, him. and and share what he's what he. So we would everybody would leave, and then there's this like little on the side of the church, a picture of the Virgin Mary with her son, where you would like turn on the candles, and everybody knew. Like, I remember my mother knew I would always stay behind with him. Um, so he would, we would stand together, and he would make me turn on a candle, and we would pray together. And we were supposed to pray for our sins and ask God for our sins, to forgive our sins. And he would do that, like, almost every Sunday. We would have to, you know, light that candle and pray together and ask God for forgiveness. For, for, in his words, for what the two of you were doing together. For what we were doing together. Yeah. And at home, we would pray before we would go to sleep too. And he would pray with my sister separately, and then he would come and pray with me. And he would like hold my hands really tight and you know ask God for forgiveness. And we don't have confession in our tradition so he would always say we need to find a catholic church <laughs> so we could find a priest or he could dump <laughs> we can confess our sins and of course we never went to a freaking catholic church because that would be crazy if i confess that to a priest you know mm-hmm. what was really going on but he would always planned that in my head like I will find this Catholic church so we can confess our sins and what he would do is I you know I was a freaking kid Um, as a girl you write notes at the time there were no text message Uh, we would write these written notes and we would give them to our friends and I had a diary and I wrote a lot of my diary nothing about him nothing I really try to have a completely separate life you know trying to survive that was my way of surviving is like erasing him from from everything that at one point i could look back and be like he existed and so naive i had this drawer 
on my desk. And this is when we started living together. Um, because for seven years, I lived with my grandparents, my aunt and uncle and my mom. And they moved to the States. And then my mom got a, a little apartment. And then we moved in with her for two years before we moved to the States, too. And he was there. He was, like, living with us pretty much. So I had this little drawer. It was the first time I had my own bed, you know, my own closet, my own, you know, desk. And my private fucking drawer with, like, little fucking, you know, those dumb keys. <laughs> I would put all my letters in there and my diary. And when I wasn't home, he would open it and he would read them. Who were the letters from? From boys in school? No, from, from my girlfriend, from my best girlfriend. Oh, okay. My best friend. And we would like constantly write about boys, you know, because okay. you're in like seventh and eighth grade and that's what you do. He probably wanted to know if exactly. you were telling anybody. Yes. No. I don't. Ah. Oh. I never thought about that, actually. It was probably just an extension of him wanting to control you. Yeah, it definitely was that. Because what he would do after reading those letters is he would come to me and he would be like, you know what, I had a dream last night. And he would recount the fucking shit that was written in the letter with just little details, like different here and there. And he would say, God sent me this message. You are cheating wow. on me. You are a fucking whore. You know? I know that you like this boy in school. You're, I can't you, fucking believe you. And did you know, that, oh, he's read my letters? No. How did you find you out he was 12 or 13. How did you find out he had read your letters? So it took me a while to realize it because at first there wasn't much detail in his quote unquote dreams. You know, they were just very like. There is this boy, and mm-hmm. I know you like this this guy, and he God told me about this girlfriend, like very you know shallow, like superficial information. And at one time, he gave me a very detailed information, you know, that was like very explicit in my letter. And I was like, God, you're shitting me, right? That you would like give him so much details. And so I went into my drawer and I realized that he must have been playing with mm-hmm. my letters because at one point I put them a certain way and I came back and I saw they weren't in that same way that I put them. So I realized that he was reading them. But until that point, I mean, I know I feel yeah. very stupid. Why? for believing him that you God was... I I know. And, and this is the thing. This it's is what we do. because you were so, you were so fucking innocent and, this and, is, and trusting. But this is what we do, right? We go back yeah. as adults. Yeah, we, we picture we, ourselves as little as, adults and then we yeah. hold ourselves up to that standard exactly. of what would, what would an adult with detective abilities <laughs> and a good sense of the law, morals, and boundaries have done and then apply those to our 12-year-old selves. Go ahead. Yeah, sorry. So one of these things, so I use them a lot to be able to get out of the house because my mother was very strict. So I wanted to go to like this barbecue that was happening. It was in eighth grade and I really wanted to go. And the first time I went, my mother allowed me to. And when I came home, she was like, be honest with me. Was there any drinking? And I told her, 
okay, I'm going to be honest with you. There was alcohol, but I didn't drink. I was being honest. I really didn't fucking mm-hmm. drink. I was like, but I didn't drink. But yeah, there was alcohol. You know, you're talking about, I went to school with the richest fucking kids in the city. You know, she paid a lot of money for that private school. I got to say a lot shit ton. And was this Miami or Brazil? This is in Brazil. This is all in Brazil. And so I told her, yeah, there was, but I, I didn't drink. And she's like, okay, well, I'm, thank you for your honesty. And so six months later, they did the same party again, the same barbecue. And I went out to ask her, mom, can I go to this barbecue? No. There's drinking. And I was like, I could have lied to you and said there was no drinking and you would have let me go. So I went behind her back and I told him, I was like, please, please convince her, you know, to go, please. And then he was to like, let you go. You mean? Yeah. Oh, yeah. To let me go, please. And he's like, why is there a boy? And I was like, no, there's no boy. I just really want to hang out with my friends. There was a boy. Um. <laughs> And so you were cheating on your stepdad. I was cheating on him. Damn it. Um, so this is so embarrassing and just have so much shame behind it. But he ended up doing something to me. Well, whatever. Ended up doing what he does best. And... After I told him, I was like, okay, well, will you tell my mom? Can I, can I go? And he looked at me. He was like, so is this what you're doing? You're using me? Oh, my God. And he fucking slapped me so hard on my face. <laughs> like, I remember being like, holy shit. Like, I felt like he, he's, what, he's... 38 and um 13 and his hands were you know I'm t- I was always a tiny kid I just remember like his hand just burning on half of my face I was like holy shit like and then he like went down on his knees and apologized and I'm so sorry I'm so sorry I never meant to do this but you're using me you're a slut and you're just using me and then he couldn't see that he was using you he couldn't see I guess that's you know when when human beings project this is my take on it but when human beings project the part of themselves that they don't want to see on somebody else it's I think that's the stuff that triggers us the most the most deeply I know when I'm getting really upset by somebody it's usually because I recognize something in them or I think I see something in them that reminds me of what I don't like about myself and this is a sick part of this whole two years was that after the act the sexual act which I won't go into details he would sit down and chat with me and talk to me about his childhood and how he was abused and how his dad used to beat the living shit out of him with his belt 
and he had um, a motorcycle accident so his knee was all fucked up and he had a bunch of pins on it and so he would like share a lot of like personal things that happened to him when he was young when he was a kid when he was a teenager and I welcomed that I look forward to those moments because it was the closest I was to anybody really and I wish that and I remember telling him at some point like can we skip everything and just like sit down and we can just chat and talk in 2000 we came to visit my grandparents in the states and he couldn't get a visa and so he would like send these emails to my mother and he would divide the emails into my mother, my sister, and me. And the shit that he wrote was like incriminating. <laughs> like this passion that burns inside of me that I don't know what to do with it. Like shit like that, like crazy shit. My mother read this email and she she went with my aunt and they took me to the bedroom and this was here that was in Miami and they're like Rama is he doing anything to you in this tone like that is he doing anything to you because those emails aren't normal like no normal man will talk to a girl like that has he done anything to you has he touched you has he done anything to you and I I was just I just stood there and I, no, no, no. And I just like started crying and just bawling. And, and then she's like, then why are you crying if he did nothing to you? Why are you crying? Now, if your mom had come in and she'd sat you down on the bed and she took your, maybe taken your hand in hers and very calmly had looked at you and, and said in a really gentle way, Honey, I'm here for you. You can tell me anything. I'm not going to be mad at you, but this stuff that he wrote. I'm just trying I'm trying to find a way for parents to be able to talk to their kids when their kid is afraid to share That's, something with them. What what would how could your mom have approached exactly, you in in a way that that would have allowed you to open up? Exactly the way you said it. I think that when they brought me in there and my aunt is, you know, she kind of has that motherly, I don't know, I don't know how to really explain it. She's always been like... This is a different aunt than the other one you were talking about. Yeah, no, this is my mo my mother's sister. Um, She was just... You know, we're trying to just understand because we don't really know. Like, this is not really normal. But my aunt is not my mom. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. My mom had to talk to me like that. And I think that if she hears this, she'll be like, but I did talk to you like that. But her tone was scary. It's It was so scary. I would have wanted her to sit there and be like, listen, you didn't do anything wrong. You know, is there anything going on? You know, like you said, hold my hand, hug me, be like, something's going on. Do you feel uncomfortable around him? You can trust me. You know, mm -hmm. I am on your side, no matter what, like I am on your side. 
you know, that never happened. It was more of an interrogation. Yeah. It was. It never came from, from empathy. It never came from concern. I mean, yeah, I think no, there was concern, but it sounds like a lot of the concern was, was that her life was going to be turned upside exactly. down. Exactly, and I, I felt that as a kid, I felt that. I felt if I told her, her life would have ended pretty much. You had an abusive first husband. Now you have a pedophile for a second one. Mm-hmm. You know, like that's it. My mom's life is over. And your had your mom had a history of making everything about her. Yes. But I also this is what I struggle with because she's a victim, my mother. You know, she married young. She married the wrong person. He was extremely abusive to her. Like there was a lot of domestic violence and there was a lot of in-law violence as well. You know, my dad's family was horrible to her. They would say, my aunt, this crazy aunt that I told you earlier, she would say, I'm going to clean the floor with your face. <laughs> it sounds that's better kind, in Arabic. That's kind of that's awesome. <laughs> Sounds I mean, better now. Hiding am I wrong, or is that kind of translate very That's well. kind of a good. That's like the dozens. <laughs> she one time she said that there was like a table filled with food, and then my mom felt like that she said the wrong thing to her, and then she looked at my dad, and she was like, "I don't think she should talk to me this way." And then my aunt got up and turned the table all on her, like Jersey style, you know, like. <laughs> Housewives of New Jersey, like just, just grabbed the table and like just flipped it, like just threw everything on her. And that's another thing that I want to talk about. It's as a child, I grew up listening to these stories, you know, as a kid, you know, and so I felt very protective of my mother. You know, I knew she was a victim, and she presented herself as a victim too. And my grandparents, my grandma especially, constantly reminded her that she was a victim. You know, you made all the wrong decisions. You never listened to me. If you had just listened to me, you Mm. wouldn't be in this situation. You should have left your kids to him. We grew up listening to this. Whenever we did something wrong, it was like, do you want to be sent back to Syria? Because I can just put you in the next plane and you can go live with your father. So it, that, doesn't, that doesn't build confidence. It doesn't yeah. build self-esteem. That doesn't build self-worth. So when you're in a situation that I was in at 13, 14, yeah, I had no self-worth. Like, I didn't know what was right, what was wrong. I, I didn't know what love was, honestly. Because if these people are saying that they love me and yet they threaten to send me back to live with my abusive father, you know, then where do I fall? So, so how did it end? So after that email, we went back and I told him, of course, <laughs> That's what you do. So I went up to him and I was like, your email was really strong. 
and they questioned me. How would he have not have expected them to read that I, and react? Do you think he like wanted to get caught? No, I, I really think. Or is he so sick that he he's can't? So see? sick. He is so sick. I mean, I. I've kept all his letters. I told you this. Your, that your friend thinks you should do a show. She should do like an art. Like an art box. Piece. Yeah. yeah, with all his letters. I kept all his letters. You call it Box of Creepy? Yeah, that's <laughs> what I would call it. And, maybe, and she said maybe we can burn it in the end. That would be, that would be liberating. Um, he bought me the Lord of the Rings book because he knew i was just fascinated by it and like i still have that fucking book with like the first page with what he wrote you know on it and my mother read all that shit it was all fucking weird but she always thought that he was just like it's poetic soul or something Mm. some fucking creepy shit you know so so how did it end so we came back and i told him and i told him we have to end it and he said we ended i end everything with your mother and i was like no you can't we just have to end it i just i can't do this anymore you know i I can't i don't want to and so my mother broke up with him and i never felt so happy i swear um and three months later they were back together (laughs) Oh, my God. And when he came back, he the first time he came to the house, I didn't know he was coming. He was like, did you miss me? What? Are you scared of me? Why are you scared? Let's just let's just sit down and chat. And I had decided that moment that nothing was going to happen. Like I was going to put an end to it. But I was 13. <laughs> and you can't. You just you can't, you know. I, I didn't have the power to do it and it was all happening all over again and I think at that point I remember I took a quiz on those magazines like the Cosmopolitan or something and about depression and I got to the results and it said please call the suicide hotline <laughs> <laughs> and I was like holy no I, I exaggerated I must have exaggerated in these answers but I was telling you, I used to sit on the windowsill and just look down and tell myself, I'm going to jump. Fourth story. Yeah, fourth story. And, and, and sh- share with them what you shared with me, why, <laughs> sometimes why you didn't. I would look down and I'm like, this is not high enough. I can just jump and become paraplegic and not die. And that would suck. You know, but I would I can't even tell you how many times I sat there just looking down, looking down, looking down. And there was a voice in my head, right, which I would call my little angel, like my angel, God, whatever, um, that would tell me, you know, the damage you would do to your mother if you did this. She can't handle anymore. And I was like, I know, but I need her to see that I'm in pain. And I didn't want to cut because it would just be messy and bloody. And, you know, I just, I really grabbed a knife and I was just like, this is not, this doesn't seem to work for me. But but you could have cleaned it up by having your aunt wipe the floor with your face. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) My great grandparents lived on the 11th floor in the same building and one day 
I went to that same window, same, same, like exactly the same house, just on the 11th floor. And I looked down and I was like, this could really do it. And there was this insane feeling of freedom. It's very scary. It's thinking about it, you know, like, I just looked down and I was like, if I do this, I really, um, I'm gone. I really am gone. I don't know why I didn't do it that day. I have no idea why. I can't really pinpoint it, but I guess I was just like thinking I can always come back. <laughs> you know, they're my great grandparents. I can always just come back up here. Maybe today's not the day, but I had analyzed it and I was like, if I jump, I have to jump from here. So he was not very good at keeping a job. He was a deadbeat, you know. So eventually she ended things. She got a job in Miami. And that was the excuse. She did what she does best. She ran away. She ended it. And she said, I am going to start a new life in the United States. And I remember her. She, was, she came to my sister and I. She was like, what would you feel if we moved to the States? And I was like, yes, please, I would love to. We don't have to live on the fourth floor <laughs> or the 11th floor. We could live on the ground floor. Yes. I was just like, I would love to. My sister was very upset. She had a very different life. Um, that was my way out. And I remember telling myself, this is God. There is a God right there. That's God. And he's saving you right now. And we left. We came to Miami. And that's when we moved. Talk about the anxiety. The, the anxiety, your friend anxiety. Yeah. And depression. <laughs> so I was telling you how I shared in support group that anxiety is my best friend. And I know anxiety so well. And it's because of those years and my problems with food which I don't have anymore. You can see it. We had a pretty big dinner, and I, I ate my plate fully um, and had space for a pie. <laughs> yeah. But you didn't finish your pie. You left a little for me. I appreciated that. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I knew anxiety very well. I didn't know it was called anxiety. <laughs> I just knew that I had these, like, I can't. And they're very physical. I think what people don't understand about anxiety, it's a, like it's a very physical feeling. It's just like somebody sitting on your chest and you can't breathe and your stomach hurts or you have this like nauseous feeling. I always feel it in my gut, you know? That's where that's where it affects me. And then just like claustrophobic. So, I would have this every single day when it came to food so i knew it very well when the abuse started it was even worse because i need to hide it because i needed to hide it from everybody so always i always thought that on my forehead it was written i'm having 
a relationship with my stepfather, just like I felt like it was like written all over my face. So I was constantly anxious, constantly anxious. But it's what I was telling you. We survivors of childhood abuse are such great actors. We know how to put a face. It's, oh, man. We know how to put a face all the time. Nobody could tell. Nobody could tell. When I moved to the States, I was just, like, ready to, you know, I was just, I always found myself a way to escape, either through reading very geeky books like Harry Potter <laughs> and The Lord of the Rings and um, other Brazilian writers who wrote on, you know, fantasy books. Um, or I would dedicate myself to work. And so that's what I did when I moved here. I said, I am going to do everything I can do so I don't go back home until like 7 p.m. And that's what I did. I joined every fucking club. I hide and knows this because we went to the same high school. I ran the class. I was class president for like three years in a row. Um, I just like just did that. I just like threw myself into work. And I learned that from my mother because that's what she did. She had problems and she was just work. She's a workaholic. She just worked, worked, worked. You consider yourself a, a workaholic? Yes. Talk, talk about what the person who's not a, a workaholic doesn't understand about workaholism. Because I think a lot of people, myself maybe included, kind of envy people that can be workaholics. And I know that's terribly unfair because all I see is, oh, you get you tear ass through a to-do list. Yeah, it's like the satisfaction that you don't get from other aspects of your life. So I knew I was smart enough to be able, and I knew I had some sort of talent leading, for example, when it came to school. So I knew my end goal, and there was so much satisfaction from it. And so much happiness that came from the end product like this sounds extremely snobby but we held our prom at a yacht <laughs> near Miami in the Miami Bay and it was $40,000 to do that and so for two years straight my goal was I'm gonna fucking raise those $40,000 and I'm gonna make this prom at a yacht because I can and I'm gonna do it you know, and so I stayed after school every day until we were able to do it. And then when we went to prom, I remember thinking to myself, this is beautiful. This is everything I wanted. But I didn't enjoy prom at all. But you I enjoyed having made that happen. I just saw the product. And once I did and I saw everybody having fun, I wasn't happy. I was pretty depressed, actually. But. I was just like, yeah, this is, this is, I did this, you know, I worked towards this. And so. You think workaholism is a kind of a desperate way to see yourself to, to, because I think when, when we grow up uh, abused or neglected or whatever, we have such, we feel so invisible and have such a lack of sense of yeah. self. I think yeah. we're always looking for tangible things in yes. the world. You know, for me, it was an audience laughing yeah. at my material. That was the first time I think I've really felt 
seen. Yeah. Do you think that for a workaholic that th- their accomplishments are that? That's exactly what it is. I think that for me, I just, I had so many holes and so much, so much void inside of me that I didn't know how to fill it. But I Have knew. Have you ever considered selling ad space in those voids? Because you could, <laughs> you, you could turn a profit, especially if you're really empty inside. You can get some big backer. You can get Budweiser in that sad part in your soul where you normally put food. You could have a yacht, ironically, I could, I and you could wouldn't have, have to stay. You wouldn't I have to could. stay after school. I could have a yacht. I just like. For me, it was just a way to prove to myself that I was better, that I have moved on, that I didn't need to live with this weight on my shoulders, that I could succeed regardless, that this wasn't going to define me. I was not going to be a drug addict. I wasn't going to, you know, sleep with other people. I I know I was going to prove to myself that I could live quote-unquote, a normal life Mm -hmm. filled with success. I'm going to achieve (laughs) and be on my own, and that will solve my loneliness. That's exactly. And if that's happened in, in in high school, in college, what I did, I ran a human rights organization, and I fucking did an event, like, every time I had a chance. That was that was my end product again. Um, I went into every protest. I was just like always into doing shit constantly, constantly. And then when we moved here and my job, I mean, you know how much I've worked my ass off just like extra hours. You know, sometimes I worked on my birthday until like midnight. Um, nonstop, nonstop. I just got a lot of satisfaction from work. And I think that's the crazy thing. It's like people who know me at work, or I was telling you this, people who know me at work or friends who don't really know about my past, they don't think there's anything wrong with me because I succeed, because I I have been able to show a product at mm-hmm. the end of the day. And it's like, look, I'm okay because I wake up in the morning and I go to work and I work my butt off and here's the product of it. So I'm okay. Even I'm, though, as you were talking about earlier today, how impossible it is, how hard you have to will yourself to get out of bed and face so the day. So hard. So hard. Some days you just you just can't. Some days it's just it's too much. And especially when I was going to group and I was like really exploring my past, it was just, I, I couldn't. She's referring to a support group she started going to a few years ago. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, and it was for uh, adult children who were abused. Yes. And something led you to seek that out. You, you said that you had felt an emptiness inside you that you couldn't define. You didn't necessarily connect it to the abuse that had happened to you. Um, but what did you find there? Talk about all the things that you got from that group, both intellectually and emotionally. I think I just work gave me a lot of satisfaction but it didn't fill the void and my relationship with Hayden as great as it is and we're almost nine years together he's been my rock but there was something missing and I just didn't know what it was and I would have these insane panic attacks that 
you remember like all through college all th- even when we moved here just i would just curl up in a fetus position and just cry and and couldn't stop i couldn't i really couldn't stop and it would start from a small fight like an argument about something stupid and it was just escalating to this this thing that i couldn't breathe i just crying 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 and i knew that there was something wrong you know i've been trying to forget what had happened to me i thought there's there is some deep wounds and some raw emotions here that I don't know where they're coming from. Isn't it weird how you can sense the shape and the tone of something inside us, but we can't put words to it? No. It's it's, like you know that something wants to be given birth to emotionally. And, And it's just not enough to just sit there and, you know, tell him, tell Hayden like I just had a flashback I don't know how to deal with it I don't know how to deal with it and I had such problems with intimacy I mean I mean you can imagine it's it's, <laughs> it's <laughs> that shit follows you it you is know? shattered it's in <laughs> I really thank him every day for being there and understanding that I wasn't ready when I wasn't ready and for being so patient waiting for me to you know finally break out of my shell so i couldn't take it anymore and i googled groups support groups for survivors and i found this group and the first day i went there i started listening to people talk and you raise your hand and you do your little share. And I was like, I came all the way here. I better fucking say something. <laughs> Even though <laughs> I wish I didn't say a word. And so I started talking and I remember that's what came out pretty much. Did you cry? I I did. I choke up and there was just like tears coming down my face. And I was like, why am I crying? Like, why is this happening? I didn't even say anything. All I said was like, I've been sexually abused. Like, that's all. And then I was just bawling. And after the meeting, these amazing people came came up to me and introduced themselves and hugged me. And, and they said just all the right things. What'd they say? They said, it's okay. It's not your fault. Thank you for coming. Thank you for sharing. I hope you com- you continue to come. We would love to have you come back here next week and and keep sharing and exploring and finding out what's what's in there. What'd you feel? So loved. Isn't it the best? <laughs> it's it's incredible. I mean, support groups are just the best thing for the soul really because you go to therapy and you talk about all these issues and it's amazing because you have such great breakthroughs but it's like what i was telling you it's so bittersweet to be part of this like community that unfortunately had to go through so much fucking shit in their lives beautiful beautiful club with a horrible cover charge exactly and you're talking to them and they know exactly how you feel exactly, exactly how the it's it's incredible it's 
And I knew that because when they were talking, I knew exactly how they felt. I was like, I am connected to you right now because I feel exactly the same thing, you know? It was so powerful. And for me, I wanted to go there and I wanted to talk about my sexual abuse. I wanted to move move on. I wanted to just close that door. But the more I was in that room, the more I realized there was something wrong with the way I was raised. Just emotional and emotional abuse and you know neglect and i think people don't understand neglect is not if neglect is not only not feeding your kids or not taking them to school or you know not having a roof over their heads no i had all these things i had that and more it's not placing their emotional needs first exactly it's like feeling abandoned it's having a parent who's just not emotionally there for you and even a well-meaning parent yes yes and i think i think that was the hardest thing to deal with because i knew the sexual abuse was wrong but i didn't know everything else was too i thought i grew up in this like fairyland you know and everything was so perfect and yes i mean sucks i didn't have a daddy and you know, I had to grow up with a bunch of people in my home. and But it was just so much more than that. It was just, they, they poked too many holes in my soul. And I just, I couldn't, I couldn't feel it. That sense of inadequacy is just... And emptiness. It, you can't. It's so hard to move forward and the thing i discovered too is when when i really began to process the stuff that i'd pushed down for so many years was there is and maybe you experienced this too was there was a period where the emptiness got even worse because of the initial uh having to embrace the real truths about thing things and feeling like oh my god how was i so wrong about this in the past and then an hour later going maybe I wasn't wrong about that maybe I'm wrong about it now Now. and just going back and forth and back and forth and being so tired of not trusting my brain that I just wanted to die exactly that's exactly you you described it perfectly it's it's just this this feeling of holy shit I was set up to fail I had no one. I just wasn't taught to be an adult. I got my whole childhood stolen from me. It's that sense of grief. You know, you grieve your childhood. You grieve that little kid. And it's a horrible feeling to to feel like, dude, I had no parents. Mm -hmm. I couldn't rely on anybody. I had a dad who called twice a year and said he loved me, but did jack shit to to show any kind of love. And a mother who was just never there. She was just never there. And that loneliness is so painful. So incredibly painful. And I think our instinct when that dawns on us 
is to try to run away from it. Like it's like it's a hot flame that we don't want to get any closer to. Yet, I think the path to really healing from it is turning towards it and just walking into that, and knowing that it, this isn't going to kill us. It's going to be super uncomfortable. But like I was talking with you, one of the things that somebody had me do was take a picture of myself when I was at the age when I was being abused and talk to it. And boy, did the tears just come flowing. And and it disabused me of the notion that I should have been able to handle things. Because when you're looking at a picture of an eight-year-old kid and you're talking to it about the things that happened to that kid, there's no mistaking that this was a child. You know, we're disabused of that that idea that we were just a little adult who is making too big of a deal of it. And it really helps. That really helped with, with me to get the, the, the healing started. I think you, was it you that took me to a middle school and showed me a 12-year-old? Yeah. She's talking to Hayden, or Hayden. Yeah. We drove by a middle school a few years ago because I just was having one of those panic attacks. Like, it was my fault. Like, I could have stopped it. And he pointed at a little girl. He's like, she's probably 12 or 13. Do you think it's her fault if something like this happens to her? I put everything into perspective. And in group, I think people constantly talked about embracing your the child within and which I hated hearing when I first started. Oh my god, thank you. I was you. like, oh, go, oh get, my a, god, go yes. get a crystal and <laughs> suck on it. I fucking hippie. I so agree. But you know, after a while, you kind of understand what it means. You do. But it was just like, embrace that kid. Have empathy for that child. You know? Look at, look at that kid. That 12-year-old girl. And love that 12-year-old girl. And forgive that 12-year-old girl. And understand that she was a child. And no one was there to protect her. But you have to protect her now. And, and this sounds really corny, but apologize to that child on behalf of the world. <laughs> it sounds super corny. But no, but it's what you have to do. I heard somebody, uh, I was interviewing somebody who had been, um, it was either a survey or somebody I interviewed, and they had been raped. And um, as they were having their rape uh, kit done, a, they had a couple of, of police officers that were really, really kind and really gentle and treated this person as if they were the first and only person that they had ever treated. And, and one of the officers said something to, to her um, that really touched her deeply. He said, I want to apologize on behalf of humanity that this happened to you. And she said that, that she could actually feel a little part of her self-heal in that moment. That's beautiful. Yeah. But then he hit her with his billy club. <laughs> I couldn't. I couldn't. It was getting too tender for me. It was getting too tender. You know, that's the other thing. I, I constantly told myself, I wish I was raped. Why? Because it would have been easier for me. I think I would have been like... Okay, I had... It really wasn't my fault at all. 
you know, I didn't want it. I said, no, no, no. Mm. You know, whereas when it's an abuse that takes a while and stretches for a few years, it's just you don't know how it started and how it ended and the guilt and the shame. I want to say that one day I won't feel it anymore. You know, I want to tell myself that. And I know that I shouldn't. You know, it's like I've gone through therapy. I've gone through mm -hmm. support groups. I know I shouldn't feel ashamed. I know I shouldn't feel guilty. But there is just there's just that little tiny motherfucker. fucking fire that still like tickles every now and then. He just doesn't leave you, and, you know. And, you, and you, I, I agree. I, I always, even though I'm glad nothing more happened to me, I I wished it had so I could put it in a category that makes it more valid in my in my mind. Exactly. And I and, and I've since found out that tons of survivors do that, and it's yeah. and that's it's normal because we want it to fit into the into the box. I want to ask Hayden uh, a couple of questions if 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 he's comfortable. Um what what are you thinking um yeah, maybe you could scoot over there and and sit next to her if you can position that mic near yourself. What are you um what are you thinking and and, and feeling as you hear Rama share share all this this stuff? Well, um it's weird because I've never seen her uh, sort of publicly speak about all this stuff. But um, I don't know. It's just a sense of, I think, admiration. Um, I remember like just learning about what had happened to her, and I just bawled that whole night and cried and cried and went to my mom and then just like broke down telling her, like, you know, this happened. And it hit home because... My uncle had also been abused, and I had found out like in the year previous to that, so I was just so shocked and every time I see her like talk about all the stuff that's happened to her, it's just like you know like she got out so amazingly well. I mean, I can't believe that she's so so well adapted <laughs> she she got a strong spirit, yeah, and she it's got just a really like, strong spirit it's just like wow, like there was um something really like deep within her that just pushed her through and you know and she i mean that she stayed away from like so many bad things that people that go through that usually don't you know um yeah it's just admiration really for she's getting choked up right now what do you want to say i get choked up every time he talks about it <laughs> he's written a few songs about about what happened to me in a poetic way, so it's not. <laughs> it's not One of them's like entitled Rama the Crybaby, which oh I think God. is a little on the nose. I think I choke up when he talks about it because I don't see myself the way he sees me, right? He admires what I guess is my resilience, and I just see it as just a survival mechanism i just had to keep going i had to keep living if i wanted to live you know and he's i mean you are such a big part of my recovery i can't i don't know what i would have done honestly without your support and when i told him we weren't even dating we were 
just graduating high school. (laughs) And I told him, and I remember the way he looked at me. And I, every time I've told someone, I've always, like, said, like, please, don't feel sorry for me. I don't want you to feel sorry for me. You know? I don't want your your pity. That's the worst. Like, I... Don't look at me like that. And he didn't. You know, he really just... He felt my pain. And... And he... He grieved my childhood. He was the first one to do that. To, like... You can't fake that. You can't fake that. Just the way he looked at me. And he had such a great childhood. He would always talk about the way he was raised and, and all the great times he's had and, you know, his parents being so supportive and there for him. And so when he heard it, it was just like, holy shit, you know. You lost everything I had. Like, you didn't get a chance to experience what I did. And you only get that once, you know. So I think that was that was hard and yet a little beautiful. <laughs> but yeah, I don't I don't I don't want people to pity me or you know, I I patronize you. Yeah. Yeah. And I I I'm, I'm sure you feel the same way. It's not you know, it's like what we say in group. We want to move from survivors. From victims to survivors. To sur- and it's for survivors to thrivers. And that's mm. that's what I want to be. I want to tell my story so people can relate. And I know that there is light at the end of the tunnel. I mean, I am not, by all means, <laughs> perfect right oh, now. No, I've, walk- I've walked around the block with you. <laughs> yes, I'll, I'll vouch for that. <laughs> I walked in circles with you. (laughs) But you can work on it. It doesn't define you. You know, your depression, your anxiety, your abuse, as crazy as this may sound, this, this just salad of shit, you know, it's, it doesn't define you. I wanna I wanna look at it as a way that made me stronger somehow. It made me it made me want other kids to never experience this or for kids that have gone through this to know that there are there is a way out. There is a way to finding a healthy relationship, finding a balance in your life. Yes, I live with depression. That's just that's just the reality. It's some days are fucking difficult. And you've started seeing a psychiatrist, and uh, you, you've she started giving you medication for your depression and for your uh, anxiety, and is helping. Oh my god, I have never lived without anxiety, never. And the second I felt that, it was just amazing. The moment I started going on the antidepressants, I felt this weird confidence it was so strange it was i remember telling my psychiatrist i feel like very confident like 
is that cocky? <laughs> <laughs> what is this strange new what? positivity? What are you giving me? Yeah. Like, why do I feel so good about about my life? Um, why am I all of a sudden focused on the good things that are happening? And I'm not telling you that's what happens every day because that doesn't, you know, that that definitely doesn't. But the fact that it does now is just holy holy shit it's like the world has been lifted off my shoulders it'd be fair to say there's still uh dips but they're you know it, it's not death valley <laughs> it dips down but it's <laughs> yes. it's not as deep and not as sustained it's, not, it's yeah. not as deep and it's not as sustained you know um and i mean how can i not you know for a real long time blame myself for my depression too of course Blame yourself for everything. Why That's not? one of my favorite things yeah. to do. Uh-huh. So, um, how can I not have depression, honestly? How can I go through life, you know, all happy and bubbly with so much baggage, you know, just carrying it everywhere I go? <laughs> what do you think that the difference is, you know, we were talking about not wanting to be pity, but we also want empathy. How could you articulate to somebody who isn't a survivor, what the difference is between pity and empathy? Empathy is putting yourself in that position and feeling that pain and and just being there for that person. You know, like, I'm not going to try to say the right thing. I'm just going to be here. Whatever you need, I'm here. Do you want to cry Just on my shoulder? Just a silent hug. Uh, yeah. yeah. You want to cry on my shoulder? Fine. Do you want me to? Do you want me to give you a hug? Great. You know that's that's what I want from people. I want them to, and it's not just to empathize with my story, but with every survivor's. And I think that. You know, I was the kind of person that for a really long time would say, my childhood does not define me. My childhood does not define me because I had such a shitty fucking childhood. But I've realized, I've come to terms that my childhood has somehow shaped the way that I act, the way that I respond to situations, um, the way I interact with people, the way I engage. And... For me, I had to come around and realize, all right, so this person, and this is how I started looking at the whole world and just people in general. This person stole, or this person is in jail for, I don't fucking know, like drug dealing, or this person is pregnant at 16, or this, you know, I started thinking about, what went wrong? Where were the parents of these kids? What happened? You know? Because that's the only explanation. Or or maybe, you know, the parents were there in a way that wasn't incredibly bad. But maybe this, this kid has, you know, there's something genetic going on with this, yes. with this kid. Yes. You know, and maybe it, nobody's to necessarily to, to, blame. to blame, but... but yeah, but there is something there, you know? There's I don't, something there. It's I not this kid people, just a exactly. fuck-up that you can There's write off. There's not just, like, fuck-ups. Let's just write these, you know, kids yeah. away. Or No. 
there's something there. Let's explore it. What happened? And I think talking about genetics and Haydn being recently being diagnosed bipolar, that's like the perfect example. And, and bipolar one, which is but, in yeah. an, an intense version the, of bipolar. The fun bipolar. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's what yeah. it's called. Told, told you he really likes it. <laughs> we call uh, bipolar two electric boogaloo. <laughs> um, so, like, for example, that, like, his parents were amazing. He had a great childhood. And, you know, it's just genetics. It's just, it's just what happened, you know? It's just, that's there and and that's fine, you know? I think with mental illness, there's this idea that you're a ticking bomb, you know? And that you might explode any minute. And people don't understand that. People think you might explode any minute. You know, I think that putting myself out there and saying this right now, like telling my story, maybe people will start looking at me like I am about to just like have a breakdown any minute now. And it's the complete opposite. The same with with Haydn, you know, like, oh, he's bipolar. (gasps) No, what? We're the Arabs of the metal world. (laughs) (laughs) Our psychiatrist is Arab. He's just like the greatest psychiatrist in the world, honestly. So I don't I don't want people to like look at him and be like, okay, should I you know are you gonna like go bipolar on me? <laughs> <laughs> no, you know, it's okay. It's just like having diabetes, you know, it's having heart disease, it's having high blood pressure, you know, it's the same. It's just in the brain, and your brain is so important. Your and so complicated. Is, yes. So why not treat it like you treat the rest of your body? You know, why not care for it? Why not why not diagnose it and, and take the right you know, the right medication or if it's not medication, just the right treatment. Why not do that? Why there's such a stigma about this, you know? And about child sexual abuse, like why are we so scared to talk about this? Why? Yeah, it's it's creepy. Yeah, I know, man. It's fucking creepy, but we got to talk about it because we can't we have to be there for for other children and for other survivors. Um Yeah, I think that for sure. How is um how is your dad doing? He's still in Syria. Yeah. My dad is there and he's one of those that will die in his country. He's a big nationalist and and he's he's pro Assad, you believe, right? Yeah, I believe so. I think it's is that hard to take? It is. It's very difficult because my cousins were right. I was actually in Lebanon when the whole uprising started. I was living in Lebanon for a year. I was working at a refugee camp. And I remember when the Arab Spring started. Yes, yeah. and I remember watching the Harir Square with my dad, you know, on on TV in Damascus, and him saying, "This will never happen in Syria, never." <laughs> and you're just like, "Well, let's let's be careful with that." Um, people are very happy with Assad, and I knew from my cousins who are you know my age that they weren't happy. They want freedom i think that's just a natural human desire it's, it's just 
a human right to be able to to elect your government, the people who represent you. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. And so the, I prefer to let the corporations do it for me. They've been yes. doing a good job <laughs> for the last hundred years. <laughs> so my cousins did go out on the streets and protested, and they get they did get caught it. And they were put in jail and beaten up, and it was it was pretty terrible. And especially my older cousin, he really was willing to die for the cause. And he just said that he had nothing else to live for. He wanted to see his country liberated. And I have a lot of respect for that, but I also didn't want him to be the one hundred and thousand and one, you know, dead, you know, and counting. I didn't want him to be what he calls himself. Like, I wanted to be a martyr. Like, I didn't want that. And s- n- nobody in my family did, so they sent him to Lebanon. And and he couldn't. I, I just, I saw so much depression in his eyes. And I, the pain of seeing your people die for no reason whatsoever other than an oppressive fucking government wanting to keep their business. That's exactly what it is. It's the Assad business. Syria is, you know... It's the what business? Assad. um, Bashar al-Assad's business. You know, it's like he runs that country, his family runs the country. They don't want to lose what they've invested for, for years um now he's a refugee in Vienna which also breaks my heart because we're talking about a refugee crisis and we can't even be human about it you know people pushing you know the Hungarian border just throwing tear gas at children and women treating them like animals why these people just want do you think anybody wants to leave their home? I mean, as a Syrian, I know there's so much pride with the Syrian people. They're so proud of being Syrian. They're so proud of their country. They would they don't want to leave. They would never want to leave. They have their lives and their homes and the, and their families and and their businesses and, and their memories. Exactly. And they went through, you know, through the sea. They've, they're walking through Europe, you know, to get to a refuge and to see the way the world is treating this crisis as if it's like, Oh, what are we going to do? How are we going to get these resources? Instead of like looking at it, it's like these are people and we have to be there for them. We we have to open our borders. It's not a question of of whether we have the resources or not. It's a question of whether we're human or not, you know? So for me, my dad wants to stay there. He wants to stay there if he wants to die in his house, God forbid, but if that's what he wants to do, you know, 
<laughs> I'm not going to stop him. He's the most stubborn man I've ever met. What does he think of your cousins, and what do your cousins think of him? Oh, my God. He he does not like their views, and he does not like my views. He always thinks I, I'm, I have no idea what I'm talking about. I live in the West. What would I know? You know? Um, I was having this conversation with Hayden, and just yesterday there is so much history of oppression and totalitarian government in the region and war and violence that they have simply and I don't want to generalize of course but they've they have normalized it when I was in Lebanon you know there's the civil war lasted for 15 years and I was there in, in 2010, 2011. And the taxi drivers would be like, there will be another war. You will see. One day we party, one day we we see bombs. Like that. And it's, it's, it's heartbreaking. And when I would speak to my cousins, they would be like, yeah, well, it's just, it is what it is. It's war. You know, we're used to it. So imagine my grandparents who grew up there and had to go through you know at least three wars and my mother had to be at a bunker at least twice as a kid during the six day war and the 1973 war um that does something to you that that changes you you know and now to see a whole generation, it's been five years. There's kids who were five when this started, and now they're 10, and they've lost five years of their lives. They've seen things that no human being should be allowed to see. We are losing a whole generation, and we, we, we need to do something. I don't know what the answers are. I'm not on the ground. I... I don't, I have actually no idea. What I hope for is that we don't let the refugees down at least, that we can care for them and care for them and care for their mental health, which is so important because they need to be treated. They need to talk about what they, are, what they saw and they need to move, they need to move forward because I have hope that it will end. I don't know how, I don't know when, but I have I have hope that this will end. And I'm not sure if the Iraqis had hope after 2003 or if the Palestinians had hope or continue to have hope. You know, I don't know. But right now, I hope I see an end to this. And I need to believe that these refugees one day will go home and they rebuild our country from scratch. It might take 50 years, it might take 100 years, I don't know. But I wanna believe that we will come together and build our country again. And we need to do that. We need to care for these people. We need to ensure that they're safe, that they're educated, that they're getting their education, especially the kids, and that we're taking care of their mental health because otherwise we've just lost 
one of the greatest people in the world. Honestly, Syrians are amazing people. And that's, you know, I know I'm biased, you know, I know. Okay, granted. But honestly, Syrians are just amazing, amazing people. Incredibly intelligent, incredibly empathetic. You know, they they took in Palestinians, they took in Iraqis, you know, they took in the Lebanese, you know, they they are cultured. I think that's one of the things that, that people, um, a lot of people don't understand about Arab culture is the generosity of yes. Arab culture. The, yes. You almost have to yell at an Arab <laughs> to stop trying to give you food, <laughs> to stop trying to make you tea, to stop giving you the shirt off their back. Yes. Am I am I wrong there? No, I mean it's so true. I mean, you come you come into their in, into an Arab's home and it truly is like. Uh, yes, I am so incredibly proud to say that I am an Arab and that I'm an, that I'm Syrian. Incredibly proud of it because of of this, like you said, this generosity and this. This insane amount of empathy, really. Well, if you go back, I hope that you use your GPS, because otherwise you're just going to be walking around the border in a oh circle. Oh, my God. <laughs> you know, I had to get one last one in there. <laughs> I, I got to tell you something. If there is one place I felt incredible peace and we talked about this spirituality and and the lack of and after everything that happened to me i really don't know if god is what god was once taught to me but if there's a place that i felt incredible peace it was at the umayyad mosque in damascus I don't know what it was. If it was the courtyard, there was so many children running around, and it was like the floor is all marble, and the sun was shining, and the call of prayer was starting, and just the kids laughing and running, and you're just barefoot walking. I, I've never felt like that before. Never. And... I really hope that one day I get to go back and and feel that again. You went to that mosque, you remember? Yeah. Well, I hope you get a chance to. Rama and Haydn, thank you. Thank you guys so much for uh, letting us into your lives. Thank you, Paul. Thank you. Many, many thanks to, to Rama and, uh, and Haydn. It was so nice meeting them and uh, getting to spend time with them. Um, you know, as I was editing the, the episode uh, together, and actually, I didn't have to do any editing for that one because I didn't cut anything out. Um, I thought uh, when when Rama and I were talking about um, bigotry uh, against Arabs, and we talked about it in the context of you know comparing it to anti-Semitism, and that anti-Semitism isn't as bad today as it used to be in in the United States. Um, I thought, I hope this doesn't come across as us minimizing anti-Semitism because it is certainly very much alive and well. I just hope it's understood that when we talked about it, it's taken in the context that 
you know, people don't don't say today publicly like she said, I would never elect um, a such and such, which you know some of the candidates are saying about uh, Muslims or uh, or Arabs. Um, I you know her her point being that you don't you heard that in the past uh, regarding anti-Semitism, but you don't hear it that blatantly today. So I, I hope that makes I hope that makes um, sense uh, to those of you who uh, may have taken exception or um, felt like we were we were glossing over something that is uh, still very serious. Um, before I take it out with some surveys, I want to uh, remind you guys that there's a couple of different ways to support the show if you feel so uh, inclined. Uh, you can go to our website, mentalpod.com, and make a one-time PayPal donation, or my favorite, become a monthly donor for as little as five bucks a month. It uh, means the world to me, and it, uh, it it helps keep the show running. You can also uh, shop at Amazon and enter through our search portal on our uh, on our website, and that way, if you buy something, Amazon will give us a couple of nickels, and it doesn't cost you anything, and it uh, it can really add up for us and, and help support the show. Um you can also support us non-financially by going to iTunes and giving us a good rating and writing something nice about the show. That definitely helps. And spread the word through social media about the show. That's a that's a, a huge way to uh, to help the show without uh, costing you a penny. Um, before I get to these surveys, there's something that, that I want to talk to you guys um, about. And I know the show was already... 130 minutes long, but you know, the nice thing about podcasts is we can make them as long as we want. And, um, I am going through some really tough stuff right now. And, um, I want to. I'm going back and forth on whether or not I should talk about it on the podcast or keep it private. And I feel like since I've been so honest about the stuff that's happened to me in my life on the podcast that that I should talk about it. So I'm just going to talk about it. And um, I got an email um from my mom that said basically in a nutshell that she's trying to connect with her precious son and whenever she reaches out you know either by leaving a voice message or sending a letter or an occasional uh email uh i go into a funk and um so I read that email, and I'm doing my usual four o'clock nap. This was last week, and um, and I just was just laying in bed, so depressed. You know, I just it brings up all kinds of shit. You know, uh, I feel some guilt. I feel confused. I feel, uh, you know, uh, then another part of me comes up that is adamant that contact with her is not healthy uh, for me. And then my brain just ping-pongs from one to the other to the other to the other to the other. Um, and so I was in that space, and my wife came home from work. And I said, can you just, you know, 
come give me a hug. And I told her, and she said, there's actually something else I want to share with you. Um, she sent a letter, and um, because my, I, I just have my wife open, st- when my mom sends me stuff, I I just have my wife screen it and tell me if there's anything, you know, that I that I need to know um, in it. And um, and she said, uh, your mom listened to the podcast, and she wants to know why you said uh, that she sexually abused you. And my mom used the word molest, which I've never used in describing what happened to me. I have used the word sexual abuse. Um, I've used the word incest. Um, I've used the word creepy. I've used the word inappropriate. Um, uh, apparently some friends of her have been, she wrote, some friends of hers have been on her ass about her needing to listen to the podcast. And I think what probably happened was uh, one of her friends had reached out to me through Facebook and kind of was uh, subtly needling me to reestablish contact with, with my mom, and um, which I'm not interested in doing. Um, and I've thought very long and hard about it, and I've talked about it hours and hours and hours in support groups and therapy and with my wife and trusted friends. And um, and so I you know, wrote back to this friend of hers. And, and, and this is a lovely woman who grew up, uh, who I grew up around on our block. She was one of the neighbor moms. Um, and I said, I appreciate your, your concern. I understand that, you know, you want me to reconnect uh, with my mom, but there are things about her that you, that you don't understand. Um, and I was just going to leave it at that. And I thought, no, you know, she, she opened that door. So, um, I wrote, uh, you used to be a nurse. Uh, let me ask you this. Um, at what age should a caretaker stop taking a child's temperature rectally? Because my mom did it until I was eight years old and I had to ask her why we were still doing it that way. Um, and she emailed me back and said, I don't think I have an answer for you, but I don't think I can convey it through a text, you know, through, you know, through email. Um, let's talk on the phone. And, you know, I, oh, the other thing I said was, you know, you were a nurse. If, if you saw, and she was also a hospital administrator and, and, I said, if you were a nurse that on the floor was doing that to an eight-year-old child, would they be reprimanded? Would anything be done? And would you let that nurse care for your child? And that was then when she wrote back and said, you know, I can't really answer this. And I haven't written her back because I think I'm just going to get drawn into that. And I also said this, this was one of many other examples of boundaries that that were crossed. Um, And most of them were not really overt. Um, I'm talking to you, the listener, now. Um, Many of them, you could have explained a single thing, but the pattern as a whole is is undeniable. Um, 
And she emailed me back and she said, um, I can't really answer you through through email. Um, call me and let's talk about this. And I haven't. And I haven't even responded to that, to that because, you know, as my wife said to me, it would be like you're trying to convince your mom that what she did was wrong, but you're doing it through this woman instead. And and my wife is right. And, and I know that this woman means well. Um, and I know that my mom is... There's a part of her that is lovely, and there is a part of her that is very sick and has her own reality. You know, the more I talk to people who have survived um, a, a parent who crossed physical boundaries with them, um, it those parents are often in such intense denial about what happens that there's not a shared reality and that's one of the reasons why I can't have a relationship with my mom is because there's no shared reality I wished for it I tried to make it happen for so many years and I think she is doing it as well you know and if she honestly doesn't think that anything ever happened that was fucked up I feel sorry for her because her heart must be breaking but I can't make her see what she did is is wrong. You know, if you can't, if you if you couldn't see that taking your child's temperature rectally at eight years old is fucked up, if you couldn't see that asking them about their pubic hair when they're twelve years old is is inappropriate, if if you can't see that. You know, saying, hello, Mr. Gilmartin, this is Mrs. Gilmartin, and talking them, to them in a flirty way is, is incestuous. If you can't see that, um, you know, breaking down and, and wanting them to, to comfort you about your marriage when, when that child is seven years old is emotional incest. You know, if, if, if you can't see that's inappropriate to ask them to get in the bathtub um, for a, a scraped knee uh, you know, naked when they're 12 years old, um, I, I'm I, I don't know I don't know what to say. So um, I'm in this place of depression once again because. I wish that there was an intersection of of our two realities, and there's not. And and I haven't even listed all of the examples, you know, of things that 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 I buried for years because, you know, and she never touched my penis, you know. You know, a lot of people think incest means that you know the parent is fucking the child. No, but you know, incest can be drinking your child in with your eyes and asking them, you know, uh, inappropriate questions uh, about their their sexuality. I'm just talking in general now. Um, and I just don't want to get drawn into the insanity of trying to convince somebody that something is valid, valid because I've spent the last five years trying to convince myself that it's worthy of the pain that I feel, that my pain is valid, 
because we all, all of us survivors, have a part in our brain that wants to minimize it and say, but yeah, it's not as bad as somebody else's. And that's that's where I'm at. You know, I, I before I flick the mic on to record this part of the podcast, I I was catatonic for 20 minutes, just feeling like a like a tumbleweed is blowing through my head, and I I, I can't put my thoughts together. I want one one of the things that I love about doing this podcast is putting my soul out there for you guys to connect to. And I want to do that with this. But now it's been complicated by the fact that her friends are listening to this. She may be listening to this. And making it public is 100% on me. That was a decision that I made and I take responsibility for. But I also feel like when you cross boundaries with your child that were crossed with me, you have forfeited the right for that to remain private. So like all of these things are ping-ponging in my head and it's fall and the fucking days are short and I'm just... When my wife came home and she read that letter to me, I said to her, and this is one of the things I've learned in my support group because I, I... a couple of years ago, I would have just said, thank you for reading that you know, to me. I'm just going to try to get some sleep. But instead, I said, "Can you?" all I could think of was, I just want to feel her weight, my wife's weight on my body. I want to feel enveloped by somebody safe. Because I was so often enveloped in an unsafe way by my mom ways that I'm sure she was probably never conscious of. And so my wife came and laid on me in bed. And she just held me and she talked about, she, you know, the things in the letter that she pointed out were passive aggressive, you know. And the other thing that my mom did in the letter was she said, I think you might have been molested by your dad. I don't have proof. And then she mentioned another relative who she thought might have molested me. And it just made me so sad and angry to think, no, no, you were the one that crossed the boundaries. I've never felt unsafe around that relative or my dad. Certainly, certainly my dad had his fuck-ups, you know. But his were of the not-interested-in-my-life variety, not the consuming me like a spouse and treating my body like an object. And so my wife and I just talked for like an hour and she helped me go through the letter and assured me that I was going to get through this. And that because one of the first things I said when she laid down on top of me was that I just want to die. Because all of those different voices came roaring up in my head. And I know other survivors relate to this. There is a mean part of our brain that takes our abuse and turns it on us. And 
my brain was doing that and I was feeling guilty and I was feeling like an exhibitionist. I'm feeling a little bit of like an exhibitionist right now, but I know my story helps people. You know, I get emails all the time from people that hear something in my story or a guest's story that breaks something open for them and helps them in some way. So that's that's what's going how was how was your week? That's where I'm at. And I don't want to die. I just want to move forward and not feel what I'm feeling, but there's no way around it. And I don't want to try to distract myself with something addictive. But it's just, it's hard. And you know what's hardest is I don't hate my mom. And I told her that in the in the letter when I cut contact with her, the message I left on the phone. I said, I'm not, I don't hate you. I'm not angry with you. I'm just exhausted by our relationship. And that still stands. Let's get to some depressing surveys, huh? Let's push it. Let's push everybody's mood right off that bridge. This is from, I don't know if I'm going to get through all these surveys. It's hundred. We're at 146 minutes right now. By the way, this last week, I created a little group on little private group um, through social media. I don't want to say any more than that because I just want to keep it super secret, but it's for people who have experienced things that their mothers did to them, you know, that were creepy or sexual or even outright rape. And um, it has been so comforting and amazing how similar our feelings are. Even though the details of the things that have happened to us may be different, the way we feel about ourselves, the the ways it has harmed our sexuality, the way it has harmed our ability to be emotionally intimate with others. And that has been like the, the, the inverse of what I've felt from getting this letter and this email from my mom, this group has been the opposite of that. It's been so it's not all bad. I'm really judging myself right now. All right. This is from a struggle in a sentence survey filled out by a woman who calls herself Alex Z. And, um, She has a lot of issues, depression, anxiety, alcoholism, bulimia, anorexia, um, and uh, cutting, and 
I just want to read a snapshot from her life. She writes, I got a parking ticket when I was parked outside my own apartment. I tried to move my car, drove around for 20 minutes and couldn't find a spot. I pulled into the loading zone outside and had a total meltdown, sobbing hysterically and yelling at myself. I then went and parked several blocks away and miserably dragged myself home, only to find that the spot right out front had opened up. I went inside, started bawling, dropped my stuff down, and went straight for the blade. I cut a gash in my forearm, and it felt like a huge weight had been lifted off my shoulders. I then proceeded to eat a whole carton of ice cream and take 50 milligrams of extra-strength laxatives. I went to work the next day like nothing happened. We aren't all as normal as we seem. Thank you for that. Thank you for reminding us that we should never compare our outsides, uh, our insides to other people's outsides. You never know what's going on with somebody. Um, you know, I'm going to read, I have a stack of these to read and I just, I'm feeling kind of drained. So I'm just going to read uh, a couple of these and, um, I don't know why I'm apologizing to you. You guys are the most supportive, compassionate um, group of people I've never met. <laughs> I've met so many of you. I've met so many of you. And um, yeah, there goes that tumbleweed through my brain. <sighs> I can't read that one. This is struggle in a sentence filled out by a woman who calls, calls herself, if I'm chubby, at least my boobs are big. Um, about her anorexia, she writes, is like constantly convincing yourself that you're too fat to be disordered, but all the while too disordered to be healthy. Snapshot from her life. I have one friend who is on medication for anxiety and trichotillomania. We're pretty close, so she seemed like a great first person to tell about my eating disorder. Her response was, it can't be that bad, though. I mean, it's not like you're stick thin or anything. She was the first and last person I will ever mention it to. And I wanted to read this because I want to encourage you to not let that stop you. If they stop you, the disease wins. Don't. She was probably a well-meaning person that is just ignorant. Don't let that shut you down. You are worth finding somebody to open up to and to connect to. And, you know, and she wrote, uh, thank you for all, all about any ideas to make the podcast better. Thank you all for that you, you do. I'm sure hearing our whiny stories all the time must be fatiguing to you. I've been doing this show for four and a half years, and I don't ever recall reading a single thing that I thought to myself that person is whining. Not a single one. I've read probably 15,000 surveys since I started doing this show. Not one. Except when I talk about my life. <laughs> This is an awfulsome moment filled out by a woman who calls herself a uh, therapy lifer. And she writes, On my two-year anniversary with my boyfriend at the time, we went on a beautiful hike on the water near our house. He took photos of me and while... <laughs> we went for a hike on the water near our house. I, I'm assuming that her boyfriend is Jesus. Uh, he took photos of me and while I was striking a pose that was bending over a bit, I accidentally shit my pants. 
He wanted to keep taking photos, not realizing what had happened, but I ran towards him and told him what happened. I threw away my underwear in a park restroom, and we went home early. Overall, it wasn't a very romantic date. You know, I debated on whether or not to read these because so many of the awfulsome moments are, you know, involve pee or poo, and you can only you can only have so many of those. But I love the bending over in a sexy pose and blowing mud. A girl never forgets her first uh, her first mud bath. This is a struggle in a sentence filled out by a guy who calls himself K, and about his depression, he writes. Um, it's clinical major depression. Uh, everyone except for me is a stupid ass who doesn't know how to do, quote, it right. It can be anything, but it's usually driving, cooking, or standing in a fucking line at 7-Eleven. About his alcoholism and drug addiction, he writes, really the only person I feel bad about my addiction is the money that it costs. Um, Really, the only reason I feel bad about my addiction is the money that it costs. I know I'm an addict. I enjoy being fucked up and prefer it to being clear-headed 99% of the time. How could anyone handle the world sober? And my thought was, you know, there is a, about your depression, there is a an anger, in, in my experience, there is an anger component to depression. Some of it is turned inward and some of it is turned outward. But what I found when I got sober from drugs and alcohol is the anger, not instantly, it took time and doing the work in my support groups, the anger really began to go away. And I found out that all of those people that I was blaming for my unhappiness, um, what I was really doing was projecting my own unhappiness and my own frustration uh, and selfishness onto them. Am I calling you selfish? No, but if you're an untreated alcoholic or drug addict, that anger isn't going anywhere soon until you treat the alcoholism or drug addiction. That's my two cents. This is a happy moment filled out. Yes, for the love of God, Paul, let's have a happy moment. Uh, this is filled out by Lane. And um, she writes, when I was in grade five, I was dreading the upcoming athletics carnival. I was quite unfit, and some of the races were completed in front of spectators. I was afraid that I will be seen as the slow fatty who finished last in every event. In the lead up to the carnival, we had compulsory training sessions where we'd have to run laps around the track as soon as we got to the track. My best friend, Elizabeth, knew how nervous I was, so she'd run really slowly besides me, beside me to make me feel like I was a fast runner. This boosted my confidence immensely. Over a decade later, Elizabeth and I are still good friends, and this reminds me. Um, this reminds me of beautiful and one, how beautiful and wonderful it is to have people that care about your happiness. There's a lot of typos in that, so uh, pardon me for for stumbling through it. People's autocorrect uh, sometimes. Speaking of misspelling. Um, Hardly a week goes by that I don't get an email from one of you guys that I respond to and it gets sent back to me because you have um, not filled out, you, you've made some type of typo in your email address. So if, if you've never gotten a response from the podcast, there's a 90% chance that it either went to spam for some reason or you didn't type your email address uh, correctly. 
This is a beautiful one. It's a little bittersweet, but uh, this is filled out by, oh, again, our friend, uh, Therapy Lifer. And uh, she writes, uh, and this is a happy moment, but but like I said, it's bittersweet. After my brother's best friend died by suicide, I drove down with one of his other friends to attend the funeral. Uh, I'm going to fast forward a little bit. Um, They're at a bar. They're drinking, and her brother uh, was very sad. Uh, so she writes, uh, they're, they're at this bar. My brother and I sat in a booth drinking a couple of beers. My brother laid down in the booth and put his head in my lap. He fell asleep despite all the noise at the bar. He was much older than me. So for years he had been my protector and I'd always looked up to him. But that night it was time for me, his little sister to be the protector. I felt his hair and it was almost like he was a small child who I loved deeply. It felt like we were children who found safety in one another. It almost brings me to tears to remember it, and I keep the story fairly secret because it is so incredibly special to me. I felt so happy to be really needed in that moment. It was the first time I felt like my brother saw me as a uniquely important person in his life. It is one of my happiest moments. I felt so happy because it happened within the context of great sadness. That is so profound. That is so profoundly beautiful. And one of the things, you know, I told you about that little um, online group um, of survivors where we communicate with each other. And the thing that we've been doing lately is we've been posting um, pictures of ourselves when we were kids and commenting um, on each each other's picture and talking about the innocence we see in those little kids and if we could go back in a time machine what what we would have done to protect them you know how how we would have nurtured them and done it for each other and it's it's been really amazingly healing to experience that kind of um, intimacy that I think only other survivors can can truly understand there's a there's a safety that I feel with another survivor that I don't feel with even the best of friend who is a non-survivor and um, again it's one of the reasons why I uh, I harp on the support groups because they're often a great place to find people who have experienced similar similar things to you. This is from the What Has Helped You survey, and this is filled out by a woman who calls herself Kitten, and her issues are depression, anxiety, PTSD, being a rape survivor, OCD, and dermatillomania. Um, What has helped you? Therapy, EMDR, and watching My Little Pony. She writes, I used to think that adults who were into it were batshit or pedophiles. Then I watched A Brony Tale and got interested in it as a form of therapy. I started watching it and now it feels calming. I also just got a dog and haven't taken any of my emergency out of van since I got him. He makes sure I get out of the house, even if I can't be accountable to myself to go outside. 
I can be accountable to a dog who needs to pee. Listening to this podcast, it's incredibly comforting to hear people who've had the same fucked up thoughts as I have. Thank you for that. This is a struggle in a sentence uh, filled out by uh, Hitten, Hitten for the Cycle, Therapy Lifer. Uh, writes about uh, her alcoholism and drug addiction. I can't even listen to people if I'm thinking about the wine I wish I had in my hand. Boy, that one made me laugh. That one made me laugh out loud with recognition. Oh, my God. Um, about her bulimia. I think I'm hungry, but really, I'm just empty. That's profound. Other compulsive behaviors, uh, adult thumb sucking. Sucking my thumb is blissful. It's pure bliss. I would rather do that than eat, drink, have sex, or get out of bed. Um, actually, I think you could do all five at the same time. You just have to have good balance on your elbows. Uh, give us a snapshot from your life. Uh, I have a lot of anxiety surrounding making friendships. I was invited to a friend's film premiere. I got dressed up, ready to go, but spent about 40 minutes repeatedly opening and shutting the front door. It's okay. You're okay. You're okay. I kept repeating out loud to myself. I just couldn't leave the house. I never told my friend why I missed the film, and it's incidents like this that keep me from making the friends I so desperately want to have. God, the... the the ironies of trauma and mental illness. The ironies are endless. This is an awful moment filled out by a guy who calls himself Bad Luck Schlepprock. And he writes, while watching a James Bond film, a bunch of information clicked. And after excusing myself and doing 20 minutes worth of research on my phone, I realized my wife was having an affair with a Russian maintenance man in her building. After she broke down and confirmed... I developed a deep resentment for anything and anyone Russian. During the last year, I sought a therapist, sought, sought a therapist as my divorce caused extreme anxiety and depression. After seeing several therapists, the only one who got to the root of my emotional problems and made almost instant progress was an attractive woman. Uh, after seeing her for the last six months, uh, I have developed a painfully deep crush on her. The crush doesn't interfere with our work as I've relieved the sexual tension by simply admitting it to her. By the way, she has a very thick accent and she's Russian. <laughs> you can't make this shit up. You cannot make it up. Uh, this is just a portion of a shame and secret survey I want to read. This was filled out by a gender fluid person who calls themselves uh, Estragon. Is that a reference to uh, Waiting for Godot? Uh, and they write, sometimes I fantasize about what it would be like, the dark thoughts, sometimes I fantasize about what it would be like to commit or survive a shooting spree or other act of mass violence. Part of me wishes I could have been at the Boston bombing or 9-11 or the Charleston church massacre. I don't know why I have the desi this desire and I would never do anything to instigate or commit incidents analogous to the aforementioned, but I want to be part of a massive tragedy. And you know, my thought was when I read that, was I think it's similar to that thing that people have where they want to be hospitalized um, because I think, or, or why people may find a cold gray day in fall really comforting. I think it's because we want the, the outside physical world to manifest itself in a way that matches our inside world. Um, 
So maybe going to talk to a therapist and, and get into the root of um, possibly some chaos that, that you're having trouble um, talking about or even feeling in a way that is expressible. This is uh, a struggle in a sentence survey. Um, <laughs> this sentence. If this isn't if this isn't a let me just read it. Uh, uh, this is filled out by a Chicago girl and about her depression she writes like the veil has been stripped away and I can see so clearly that everything we do is meaningless and futile and the activities we do to bring us joy are just makeup and perfume on a corpse. If that doesn't get sewn onto a baby blanket and given it a bridal shower at some point the world is not fair can you imagine can you imagine sewing that onto a baby blanket and giving it a <laughs> and then filming it oh my god oh my god I'm so, and I'm not making fun of your depression. I'm sorry that you are depressed. That is just such a beautifully sad sentence that you typed. Um, yeah. Snapshot from her life. Listening to the stories of depression on the Mental Illness Happy Hour um, at my meetings and with a friend and hearing how depression means you can't get out of bed, can't shower, can't get going and thinking to myself for the thousandth time, stop feeling sorry for yourself, you stupid bitch. Your depression isn't real. Because the thing is, mine doesn't look like that. Even when I'm at my worst, I get up every morning and put on makeup and go to work and joke with my coworkers and see my friends and fuck my boyfriend. Not because I want to, but because something compels me. My body does these things like a robot receiving orders from somewhere else. Somewhere else, not from me. I am far away, lost in sadness, wishing I had never woken up, never been born, and finding that the only thing that brings me momentarily rele momentary relief is fantasizing about slitting my wrists. But I'm out of bed, at work, in a cute outfit, smiling. So I must be okay, right? Thank you for that. Thank you so much for that. Because I know there have got to be a shitload of people that feel exactly the way you do. You know, at, when I was doing a dinner and a movie, that I had to get up out of bed. I had to smile. And I lived that for 15 years. And I, I don't think for a second you should ever minimize what you're feeling. You know, I am far away, lost in sadness, wishing I had never woken up, never been born. There is nothing whiny or feeling sorry for yourself in that. Your depression is so real. I mean, I hope you hear this. I hope you hear this episode. I hope you stayed for the 167th minute of this godforsaken episode. Um, that is not a comment on the on the interview, by the way. I, like I said, that that interview was two hours long, and I. Didn't edit a minute out of it. I loved uh, talking with Rama. I'm talking about you having to hear my voice for 
what are we going on? 48 minutes? We're almost done. We're in the home stretch. I'm getting a second wind. Fuck it. Let's, let's break a record for podcast length. Have we ever done one this long? Ivy? Oh, she doesn't have her notebook with her. She keeps notes. Mostly she just draws her rolling her eyes at me for not throwing her the ball. That's all That's all her graphic novels are, are me letting her down by not giving her enough attention. And, and Herbert lately has taken to a minute after I give him a treat, uh, both of them treats for coming in, looking up at the counter and groaning because he wants another one. And I give it to him. This, do I want to read this? I don't think I can read this. Yeah. Sorry. Why am I apologizing? This is a struggle in a sentence. This is filled out by uh, a woman who calls herself stuck in space about her anxiety. I'm anxious that I'm wasting my time worrying, but if I don't worry, I worry that I'm going to forget to worry about what I'm supposed to worry about. That's a good one. That's a good one. About her codependency, if I have to ask myself if I love my boyfriend or need him, does that already mean I'm too far gone? That is good. Sex crime victim, wondering if I was assaulted, quote, enough to have my abuser's name pop into my mind every time I'm intimate. Yes. Yes, you were assaulted enough. If his name is popping into your head every time you're intimate with someone, yeah, then I think I think it is. If you're even questioning yourself, then I think it probably is. But it would be great to go talk to a therapist um, about that or a support group or uh, Rape and Incest National, uh, National Network, R-A-I-N-N.org. Um, you can often get free counseling there. So why not, why not uh, go there? It certainly couldn't hurt. And then you can help answer that question instead of that fucking with you probably for the rest of your life. This is an awfulsome moment <laughs> filled out by a, a woman who calls herself... Uh, actually, uh, she put female and then bordering third gender, mostly gender fluid, and uh, we'll say them, calling uh, themselves uh, Microsoft GTS. And uh, they write, I was on a plane next to my grandma and decided to start reading the graphic novel I had recently started at this point. I thought my grandma had fallen asleep. I got to the part of the graphic novel that had a really graphic orgy that was about six pages long. And I see out of the corner of my eye that my grandma is looking at the graphic novel. I try to pretend I don't notice and have decided to watch a movie. As I'm putting the graphic novel in the pouch in front uh, in front of my grandma, in front, uh, my grandma asks if I want to know what she is reading. I say, sure. What are you reading, grandma? She replies, the Bible. Do you want to know some of my favorite verses? 
and then proceeds to read me three verses of her favorite verses. She never admitted to having likely read the six-page orgy as well, but she must have also felt remorse about her having read it. And then uh, finally, this is a happy moment from uh, our friend who has done previous surveys named Hope is a Thing with Feathers, Eating a Smaller Thing with Feathers. And uh, she writes, when I was younger, I had a very, very close friend. She even had drawers for her own clothes in my dresser because she was over at my house so much more than she was at her own home. We were like sisters. As my mental illness hit extremes, our relationship suffered. Behaviors I wasn't totally in control of all but destroyed our friendship, and by the time I moved out of state, we weren't really friends anymore. It broke my heart. I worked on it in therapy a lot, talked about how much I loved her, how much she meant to me, and I worked through the guilt of my mental illness's influence in the destruction of our friendship, accepting that I just didn't have the tools then that I have now. I was just a teenager in the height of illness with no way of expressing that. Well, after six years of radio silence, she writes me on my personal blog and asks if she could call me. I have an immediate panic attack, but I'm also thrilled. I let her call, and one of the first things she says is, I was recently diagnosed with an anxiety disorder and depression, and I think I get a little bit about what you were going through back then. I'm sorry. I think I understand now. It was one of the most cathartic, incredible moments in my healing. I cried, and she cried a little, and it was wonderful. There's tons to repair and time to make up for, I suppose. But with those words, she made me feel so heard and so understood, and that her diagnosis made her think of me, drove her to call me after six silent years, really lightened the burden in my heart. What a great note to end on. At 174 minutes. Paul, you can't go six more minutes. Make it three hours. Be a week. Did your parents raise a quitter? I'm so tempted to, to just fill six minutes with ridiculous shit. My brain is shot. I can't. I can't go another six minutes. I so want to. I should go get Herbert. Get him on the mic. Uh, well, if you, first of all, if you've stayed this far, you will be getting a medal hand-delivered to you by a crazy person. Um, I'm really, I'm so grateful for this community that we're building together. There's so many days where I'm struggling and I'll get an email from one of you guys saying, you just went to your first therapy session and hearing us talk about it on the podcast, you know, going to therapy made it less scary for you. And now you have a little more hope in your life. You know, that... Or when you hear me talk about my mom and you just send me an email to say, I was thinking about you today. Um, 
I'm sorry you had to go through that stuff when you were a kid. That means a lot to me. It really means a lot to me. And um, I hope you heard something tonight if you're struggling. I hope you heard something that um, illuminated some part of your brain or your heart. And um, made your day just a little bit less confusing, a little less painful, a little less tired. And um, I hope you know that you're not alone. And there's so much help out there. There's so many people that want to help, that know how to help. You know, as I said to a friend today, we may not have caused an injury that we're suffering from, but we are responsible to get to the hospital to, to see that we heal. Um, so if you hate that analogy, <laughs> go fuck yourself. But I think it's a pretty good one because um, I'm not responsible for the shit that happened to me as a kid, but I am responsible for deciding what I'm going to do with it, with the pain, with the terrible coping mechanisms that I still struggle with. You know, I continue to act selfishly and inappropriately and inconsiderately. Oh my God, we're at, we're at 178. Well, now I got to go. I got to go two more minutes. Let me describe Herbert's asshole to you. I, I really think if we're going to go three hours, it, it would be doing a disservice to, to not touch on Herbert's asshole. It's a thing of beauty. It, it's... When I, when I give him to the dog groomer, I always say, short everywhere. But when his butthole gets shaved really, really short, it itches. And so he does these circles on the rug that are really adorable. But in good conscience, I can't get his butthole shaved uh, like that anymore because it's just too itchy for him. But I got to say, he uh, he's a handsome, he's a handsome little boy. And uh, and I don't know if I have anything more to say. <laughs> if I were in radio, my final check would be Right now, they would have just slipped my final check uh, to me, and uh, and they would be emptying my desk out. Ivy is so upset that I'm not talking about her right now. She's, you know, Ivy doesn't need to be uh, degraded by uh, me talking about. Plus, she has so much hair. She's got part Sheltie. She has so much hair that I'm not even sure she has a butthole. How her poo comes out through that forest of Sheltie hair uh, amazes me every day. Um, look at this. Seven, six, five, four, three, two, one. Thanks for listening. 
Everybody I know is bizarrely beautiful. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way. Bizarrely